off the ball. I don't think Springboks are in crisis because you would hate for a team that is so phenomenally good a year out from the World Cup to be world number one and then to go out in the quarterfinals. Yes, yeah, Stephen, we, we need to subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. All right, Thursday morning, it's Jar and Shane with you all the way through until 10 this morning. If you want to get in touch, 087-9180-180 is the WhatsApp number. If you are a Liverpool fan, we'd like to hear from you this morning. Uh, I tweeted out a little bit earlier on, you know, Aston Villa will definitely not stand in the way of a reunion. If you want Stevie G, come and get him, just pay the money. We've seen that, that's what the big clubs do, isn't it? They just, they want Graham Potter, they go and pay the money. Just get him. He's available. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, he's, no, he's not available. Sorry. And obviously, you know, give us, I don't know, 50 quid and a, whatever whatever change down the back of the yeah, pack the of crisps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pack yeah, of yeah. crisps, some chewy toffees. We'd be happy enough, you know? We wouldn't stand in the way of a dream reunion anyway. It's funny how football could change. I mean, you must be feeling yourself. <laughs> yeah. There's like nothing. I just think about Man United fans, the, the turnaround in the last two weeks where the absolute terror of going to play Liverpool or Liverpool coming to play you when that was 5-0 last year yeah and the turnaround from there to here it's like well and, and it's okay to come out and watch football again I mean when the club when another club takes the focus off United it's it's, it's to United fans uh, delight because very often the, the focus is on Manchester United for, for good reasons and bad but yeah Liverpool are doing it and uh, Chelsea are doing it too Chelsea like now it's funny, the Chelsea thing doesn't make any sense, right? And then you start to read about it, and we actually have Ben Jacobs coming on in about 20 minutes' time from CBS Sports. Uh, he's written a piece which is basically like, this was, this had been on the cards from very early on. I'm not going to spoil his lines, but um, uh, he makes it make sense because he's obviously done a lot of reporting on the side of the American owners and has sources within the club who are like basically saying, there's a new system coming and the manager was not suitable for the system we need somebody who's going to work within the system that's the, that's the line from the owner so yeah um, but, and, and like Potter might be that man you know it's funny that the mixture of, of opinion pieces in the papers today tend to be people who are like oh this is no surprise the Tuchel's gone and then some people saying well this is a surprise obviously the Tuchel's gone like if you listen to his post-match press conference after the Zagreb game you didn't get the sense that he was, that he thought his job was in jeopardy like you got the sense that this is a man who wants to take a portion of the blame and, and accept that it's not a result that the club should have uh, suffered but there is no indication from him that, that this was it he seems to have been shocked alright that, that's um, a, a detail in, um, in Ben Jacobs' piece we talked to Gareth Roberts as well about Liverpool by the way so that, don't worry we will definitely pick over the carcass of last night's 4-1 defeat um, on, the, on the Potter thing it's like it's, it, this isn't just um, this isn't just we're pulling the ejector seat and we're panicking into the next manager. It does seem like Potter is a project manager, someone who will come in and will fit within a system and will uh, help work with the players and will... Do you know, it's not... This isn't Abramovich sacking for, like, the next big celebrity manager. No, it wouldn't It wouldn't appear so. And, and like, he's not the first name you would, that would have... Like, obviously, Pochettino is the name that pops into everyone's head straight away, but... He's on their list. Zidane is on their list. Brendan Rodgers is on their list. Interestingly. He's on every list, though, isn't he? Well, no what. he does have Chelsea connections. He he could fit within the system. He's not he's not big enough anymore that he would be coming in and shouting the odds about the owners. He'd yeah. be, like, very glad to get that job now. He's an option. Like, you'd be surprised if, at this stage, Potter doesn't get it. I, but, I mean, like, it seems all but done. But, I mean... Uh, like, you were making the point that Kenny was was on the football show last night saying he should hang on hang on like yeah Kenny Cunningham's basically saying that you know the, 
the opportunity might arise in a, in a year or two whenever Pep Guardiola decides to leave that the Man City job comes up that's obviously a more lucrative job than Chelsea in terms of challenging for the Premier League title maybe you could say that with this Chelsea team in uh, a couple of years you could get there as well but well, they, 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 have, they obviously are deciding they're going to spend a lot of money well yeah and this is this is why it's probably not like not surprising that Brighton allowed Chelsea to speak to Potter because first of all Potter asked to speak to Chelsea you're reading in the papers today as well that this release clause I think it's at 16 million at the minute but it tends to go down every single year so if they're going to get rid of him may as well do it now do it now bite the bullet the one thing I'd say about waiting right like if you're Brendan Rodgers uh, if you think back to when all the big jobs were coming up and he was automatically the first person linked with it and the only reason he wouldn't have got the Man United gig was because of the Liverpool connections and that would have been too much and we've seen and it's like he's not he's not really mentioned you know <clears throat> so Potter's never going to get Brighton higher than they are at the moment Yeah, maybe they qualify for the Champions League in like a Leicester style season and, and this is the year to do I don't know I, I don't think so Yeah, but Liverpool appear weak you know, if Chelsea get the wrong manager now, then suddenly, so all of a sudden, you know, it's it's not it's a Leicester style push to finish fourth slash fifth is on the cards at the moment, the way they're playing. But yeah. you wait, and uh, the next season, four of their best players get sold, they get replaced with slightly, and all of a sudden you're finishing tenth. Your chance for getting the Chelsea job. Yeah, like Man City then going, oh, we're going to take the guy who finished. 11th I know it's at a plateau at the minute with Brighton where he nearly needs to jump now like John Bruin was on the football show last night with the lads and, and had a really interesting line kind of reminded all of us about uh, Brian Kidd taking that Blackburn Rovers job in the 90s and he was basically saying that the famous line from Kidd was I don't want to die wondering Do you know and it probably was his moment to take a big job from a big Premier League team at the time it, it's probably as you say in a similar position now where Brighton can't go any higher if you want to go and take a job at one of the top four clubs in, in the country do it, yeah, and and you, nobody could could blame Potter for doing it. The only thing is, Potter's such a likable guy, really, really interesting guy as well. Like I was talking to you before we come on air, but the masters in emotional intelligence he has, uh, and he's quite clearly an intelligent manager who thinks about things outside. We saw the Rainbow Laces campaign as well. He's a bit of a more of a socially conscious manager, kind of along the, the Southgate lines, I guess. Um, a fascinating fella, but you don't want it to end like it tends to end with managers at Chelsea because. It usually ends in tears. I, I would agree, right? The one thing you have to say, and I was making this point the whole way through, is that uh, the, the ex-manager now was not the choice of the new owners. And the new owners have spent 300 million quid and they're not getting what they want. Like, uh, the, the stories and the details. In, and again, Ben's piece is excellent where it's like... Um, Bodies around the place, chatting to everybody, has a great relationship with the captain, the senior players. There's an American superstar who's very unhappy with the minutes he's playing at the moment. Do you know? Like, Potter will come in and uh, and if the deal is you're going to have to take this job and you're going to have to find a way to like get him in the team, okay, I could do that. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a good player. I could do that. 100%. He'd make it work. And, and Tuchel, Tuchel seemed to... I don't know if the, if the players were fully on board with him towards the end. Maybe... Tabuli and the and the owners kind of sense that, and if he's not following the not le- not instructions but communication levels desired of the of the owners, then they're of course going to want their own man. I'm not a fan of the WhatsApp group apparently, Thomas Tuchel. This is the thing you got to stay in touch with your owners. I like. I mean, there's a game to be played there. Now here's the thing, right? So Tuchel, I don't think Tuchel's reputation has been damaged at all, really. No, no. Well, it's hard to know. It's hard to know. Like, where where does he end up next? Where's the next job for Thomas Tuchel? Like, probably not in the Premier League. 
Um, obviously a very very clever guy could could work anywhere could now take any of the super clubs has been fired yeah. from the two most chaotic ones <laughs> uh, and so therefore anything after this is going to be relatively straightforward for him the, the scary thing now about this is for, for me when I saw it yesterday for, my first indicate my first instinct after I heard the news was obviously surprised Champions League winning manager with Chelsea but nowadays in football it seems nothing keeps you safe in a job like I mean Brendan Rodgers won the FA Cup with Leicester it's probably not going to save him in the next couple of weeks if results keep going the way they are so football is just at that point now where you can win whatever tournament you you like and it's just it's just a matter of what the owners like what they want um, it's very very reactionary uh, and I would say that about Tuchel but I think he'll be okay. he'll be absolutely fine his reputation hasn't taken a hit whatsoever um, like they beat West Ham last weekend in the Premier League Chelsea no it should have been a draw you should have been a draw of course but it's a results based business it is but it, it, if you think about that it should have been a draw Graham made the point on the show yesterday it should actually be defeat draw defeat that's yeah. the run of three games which he has been sacked for like <laughs> Todd, Todd Bowley he's not having the VAR he's like no nah, that was a goal I, we've dropped points there yeah <laughs> it's too late it's too late but I, look the the fit wasn't right I think the Potter thing like um, Carragher's column today which is obviously in the Telegraph carried in the Irish Independent uh, the sacking of Tuchel will do lasting damage to Chelsea's plans but I mean it won't like the thing is it won't no because they've, they've got so many good players and they've got so many good young players like you know, we'll we'll hear more about the the plans, but um, but the Champions League is where it's at financially as well. So the the, the owners may be and look, it might be used as an excuse and, and a way out. But losing the first game to Dinamo Zagreb in the in the Champions League group stage, you want you have to get out of that group. So you've only got five games games left now to do it. The the sooner a new manager is brought in, the better chance he has of getting the team out of the. Well, group. that that's the bit. It's like oh, wait for the international break and you give yourself uh, plenty of time to do it. But they've decided. They've obviously been thinking who the next manager was. Yeah. They didn't just like wake up, go oh, I'm going to sack him. Who's good? Oh, they're ahead of us in the table. <laughs> we might be able to get him. What's the story? Like this um, this. Uh, buyout clause uh, release clause that Graham Potter had how did everybody know about that how did that suddenly leak out <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like top secret uh, situation where Graham Potter has like this oh this flashing light going 16 million 16 million 16 million. it's like one <laughs> Karnik Chokomenka and you get the manager of your dreams was it the Brighton ch- chairman or someone came out in an interview and, and kind of almost hinted at, at the uh, fact that did he I remember something to that effect or reading about that yesterday it's like maybe that the Brighton chairman came out at one point in an interview did Chelsea personnel watch that interview? I would say absolutely yes. Well, I mean, they're all hanging out now. Todd <laughs> Bowley literally had... had did, did, yeah. They said he wanted to meet Potter and Pochettino. Right. Whether he met Pochettino as well yesterday. I'd say he's already know, met Pochettino before now. Probably. You know? Yeah, yeah. Got to do your due diligence. It looks a bit strange now if Potter doesn't... Just came at golf, a bit of steak afterwards. <laughs> yeah, sweet talk. But I mean, if Potter doesn't take the job now for whatever reason... Pochettino was left knowing oh, I wasn't I wasn't the main guy but but I don't think he'll care they've got to get over themselves pretty quick don't they yeah 100% but it, but the next like you'd imagine today or tomorrow there's going to be there's going to be a solution like Potter's going to have to make his mind up fairly quickly on this one like we're mid-season here Christian Falk reporting that Tuchel's refusal to sign Ronaldo was one of the main moments that deteriorated uh, that uh, contributed to the de- deterioration in the relationship between the um, the owners and him I mean like it doesn't go very well but um if manager doesn't want to sign a player, just forget about the player. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, instead, though, in fairness, like they have spent a lot of money to sign Aubameyang. Well, yeah, which is basically the same player. 
yeah, the stage of their careers. It's uh, and, and all the interviews last week, though, Bamiang, where I can't wait to get playing with Thomas Tuchel again. <laughs> and then he plays like what an hour under him. Maybe is he, is he going to show up? Is he going to be on time? Is he going to be disciplined? Is he going to get sacked again before Christmas and be back to yeah. Barcelona or whoever for free? Who knows? OTBM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effort that's finished today. We are going to talk about Liverpool though with Garrett Robertson in about twenty five minutes time because I don't know what's going on here. I mean, I guess Klopp afterwards is is um, asked, oh, what's going on?" And he's like. Well, you saw the game. You, you saw the game. We all know what happened. We do all know what happened. Joe Gomez had one of those games where it looks like he won mm. a competition Howler. to play football. And, and he got away with a couple of the mistakes. Like, yeah, and they got away with a missed penalty. And they got away with a sitter after 25 seconds. Yeah. Like, it could have been a lot worse. It should have been seven. Yeah, 100%. It would like, oh, one of the other questions was, have you ever played that badly in a, in a, in a first half? It's like, well, Villa. I mean, we, did, did we just forget about the Villa game? Yeah, like, yeah, what? yeah. And I think you referenced a previous Napoli game a couple of years ago as well. Like, no, obviously they're haunted. <laughs> Napoli, Napoli. Uh, I do think, though, that um, there's something else. It, it can't just be Joe Gomez, can it? No, 100% not. But it's, it's the players. Like, if, if you look at the, the attitude of the players at the minute, and, and it's very easy to, to point at the players when, when results aren't going well, but I think you need to. Trent Alexander-Arnold was... Woeful last night as well. Virgil van Dijk, uncharacteristic errors, left, right and centre. James Miller, good goalkeeper. Very and he started complaining after that penalty. Uh, I mean, he was like, that wasn't handball. It was the most blatant handball you'll ever like to see. But, like, Pep what was Lander, he doing? What, I, was, what was he doing, you know? He didn't want to look like Virgil with his hands behind the back because it would have been yeah, hypocritical. Yeah. So instead he puts his hands out and goes, well, OK, same, same result. But I mean, it was in a Pep Linders, the assistant manager of Liverpool often said, our identity is intensity. And Liverpool's intensity levels this season haven't been anywhere near what they have been. Like, I think that the running stats were referenced last night on the, on the television as well. But like, I'm just looking at some of the stats here in front of me from Liverpool. This season, an average of 3.4 kilometres per match, they're running less than opposition teams. A total of 20 kilometres less than their opponents over the six Premier League games. And in the corresponding fixtures last season, the first six games, they'd run 11 kilometres more. Right. So, I mean... Big swing. A massive swing. But, I mean, it's hard to pinpoint what the reason for that is. Is it the training? Is it over? Is it too many games last season? Is it attitude of the players? It's very difficult to know exactly what the situation is that has um, caused that drop-off. Was it like, did their heart get broken at the end of last season when we kept saying, oh, they're going for four, and then the stuff that matters... Fall like, through their fingers at the end. There is that you have to look at it. At, uh, Klopp is, is a great man of excuses, but they did have eight outfield players, I think, on the bench last night, as opposed to Napoli's eleven. They have had their injuries. I know Henderson's out at the minute, but Thiago came back. There's, it's not really an excuse. The owners didn't spend any money. Well, yeah, like, they don't, yeah, and they get away with it. They get away with like being, oh, we're this great because we, oh, we really care. We kept the stadium, we've rebuilt the stadium, we've got everything organised, and there's no. It's like they they get a free pass. Well. What, what was striking? They've literally got one of the greatest managers in the history of the game in yeah, charge, yeah. and they sat in their hands and they haven't backed him in the transfer market in a way that they could have done to make sure that they keep pace with the oil. Co- he is keeping pace with the oil countries, <laughs> and and you're like, oh, well, net spend. I don't know what the net spend was. This, this is I was looking at net any. spend even last night. The net spend, like, well, the, the stats from June, the net spend for Liverpool was 199 million. It, they were ninth essentially out of Premier League teams. I, out of out of out of like, but over what period of time? So so since twenty seventeen, like, like I mean, which is a bit ridiculous. Like United, United while you top. had Klopp, yeah, 100%. and while he's been winning, you imagine you've watched everybody else. <laughs> but the, the thing that struck me last night, and I don't want to overstate, um, you know, it's, it's one game at the end of the day, but they haven't been good this season. 
cycles for these teams have to reach an end at some point and Klopp Liverpool fans will want Klopp to go out on his own terms or in a positive way you don't want it to end badly they don't want him to go out at all that, like that is yeah. that is a disaster if he leaves because that, that, the only thing that keeping them the only thing keeping them relevant at the moment is his genius yeah so who's going to commit Steven Gerrard coming in somebody, it, somebody else but if this is the cycle coming to an end for this team then Klopp should leave because that's the time for, for a successful manager to go Ferguson did it uh, Wenger didn't really do it but he, he, like, Ferguson didn't Ferguson stayed four times the cycle ended well, and, sorry, and, yeah. and kick started again he just kept rebuilding a new yeah. cycle yeah yeah uh, like Klopp was going to realise that's not going to happen with this Liverpool team unless they do back him in the transfer window and that doesn't seem to happen like did, did, did they really replace Mane I'm not so sure like Salah didn't look fantastic last night Firmino's looked good this season to be fair to him but as a team as a whole they're just all over the shop. The the attitude was was was, was something else, and, and you could tell from minute go yesterday, it just wasn't going to go their way. Like, I don't know. You can make excuses to the band come home, but but Liverpool this season just have been off the pace in every single sense. And the attitude the, the attitude is the, is the main thing from my from my perspective. Like, I don't know what Klopp doesn't like going to Naples. Like that's his fourth time there, and he's never won. But. I don't. I. I don't think it's a disaster for them because they can't just replace Gomez and they can't take Miller out of the team. And you know, yeah. th- there's definitely a way for them to recover from this. But you would say that there's like systems failures. There's there's individual levels of form uh, that, as you talked about, Virgil uncharacteristic mistakes, but now kind of characteristic. quite characteristic <laughs> yeah. over the last four months. Uh, and then also the form of Mo Salah. Like, what the hell is going on there? Yeah, they're not using them in exactly the same way. Uh, they're trying to accommodate the the new signings, and it just isn't working at the moment. So um, you're seeing Salah and Firmino walking off the pitch together last night in double substitution, and who was it come up? And Nunez and, and Jota replaced them. But to see even Salah walking off the pitch as a substitution is so strange from anyone's perspective. It just doesn't happen. No, and like the only probably the only bright point for Liverpool last night. Some Liverpool fans might disagree. Is was Luis Luis Diaz? He was excellent. Probably the only player on the pitch that could maybe hold his head up high for Liverpool. Um, whereas Napoli all over the pitch. And I, Guisa I was just. Alisson was quite good. He was okay. I, yeah, he I mean, considered, conceded he, four, but he, yeah. but he, you know, as for a keeper who conceded four, he didn't do badly. But though some of those Napoli players put themselves on the map, I mean, the, the Anguisa um, fell in the middle of the park was just extraordinary for them last night. Um, they're just the players. And, and then Diego Simeone's kid coming off the bench to score a goal. And and Atletico, of course, winning in the in the ninety six or ninety ninth minute, I think, as well. So a good a good uh, day out for the or night evening for the for the Simeone family. But I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Is it the, is the atmosphere in, in Naples? It already gets the Liverpool players. They're they're quite used to this sort of thing. But I mean, I was talking to Emma outside, and, and she made the point that sometimes Liverpool make a bad start in the Champions League, and they go on to win the bloody thing. So maybe we'll be looking back at this conversation next there are some Liverpool shaped straws that uh, Liverpool, Liverpool fans are clutching to this morning if you're a <laughs> Liverpool fan we would like to hear from you though what the hell is going on it's 7.48 you can leave a comment in the YouTube stream or of course you can get us on 0879-180-180 that's the WhatsApp number Thomas Hunt clap out Jonathan Marrow clap still at Liverpool it's shocking clap out the wheel says James Sullivan <laughs> For United fans this morning, is it? You've got to, you've got to like take these moments when you can get them right because it's a long out <laughs> season and who knows where it's going to end. Yeah, there's a lot of Liverpool fans in WhatsApp groups uh, slagging United fans after the opening two games, kind of saying relegation was on the cards. So football comes back to bite fans pretty quickly. But will Liverpool make the top four this season? <laughs> Are we starting that conversation already? I mean, two yeah. years ago they squeaked in like they, yeah. sh- they shouldn't have made it, and they did. But then, yeah, well, you could argue City and Spurs are, are pretty much nailed on for it. Um, if United continue 
what they've done in the last four games, they could probably sneak into a top four maybe. But I mean, yeah, it's, it's a fair argument, I think, at this Grand, point. Graham Potter's Chelsea. Graham Potter's Chelsea or Graham Potter's Brighton, whichever team he continues to stay with until the end of the season. Chris Carl says, Potter's in a no-lose situation, 10 million plus a year, and if it fails, he won't get the blame. You have to take the job, I think. You can't hold on for the City job that might never come. And you don't even know if you're, you're a City's guy, you know? The only thing is obviously a loyalty to Brighton if he feels like he has that sort of loyalty. But then he, he's up in the conversations with Chelsea yesterday, so the loyalty isn't yeah, exactly... Yeah, Brighton are getting paid. Yeah. That's, I, a, that's a good deal. And he's going to get seven figures, you'd imagine, for the year to, to manage a club like Chelsea. I know the money's probably not, not all it for him, but I mean... Sorry, eight figures. Eight figures, sorry. Of course, he's already on seven. But um, yeah, I mean... Such a likable fella. Yeah, I'm delighted for him. I'm shocked that Man United weren't in for him when the before Ten Hag was kind of mooted. He, his name wasn't even mentioned really. It was Ten Hag or Poch. Yeah, but uh, I mean, his name is now mooted with every single uh, vacancy that comes up, a big vacancy. So yeah, I think I think you're right. He has to probably take the job. Game every three days between now and the World Cup is going to be very hard for any manager. Says John Claffey. It is going to be a, a pell-mell situation for whoever takes over whatever of the jobs become available. Uh, right, I'm glad to say Ben Jacobs is with us this morning. Ben, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? It's been a pretty busy uh, 24 hours or so for you. Your reporting on this story is really interesting and you've got really interesting details about when the divorce that was made public yesterday actually started in in theory to happen. It, 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 is it right to say that a pre-season friendly, which none of us really cared about at the time, is now one of the seminal moments in Thomas Tuchel's life at Chelsea. Yeah, I think so. Not because of the results. Chelsea travelled to America and in Orlando they played Arsenal and they lost 4-0. And obviously nobody should care about a pre-season result, but Thomas Tuchel's reaction was fiery. And Todd Bowley is all about people and culture at a football club. So Tuchel had been given more responsibility at Chelsea, which he'd asked for. And with that responsibility, naturally comes the balancing of lots of different things. And the new ownership group effectively felt like Tuchel shouldn't have been publicly that critical of the movement in the transfer market because he knew that after that pre-season, there was months left of the window and in excess of 250 million to come because he'd been told what the budget was. And if you're the manager and you're given more autonomy over transfers, then with that also comes accountability. So to bemoan the lack of movement and the problems with the transition didn't go down well with the new ownership group. And that began a kind of frostiness where Tuchel wanted to focus after that loss only on football and the ownership group being quite inexperienced because Todd Bowley was in so where the manager wanted to do his actual job title which is head coach because he's preparing for a new season and the ownership group needed him to step up and be a more active part of transfers so when you add all of that up that was the first point when the relationship broke down and it only got worse from there as things got more chaotic as the window progressed. Now, I should point out that there's huge respect for Thomas Tuchel from the ownership group. They just assessed him, his personality, as well as his ability to coach a football team. They looked at the dressing room as well and worked out... 
We're just having a bit of trouble with your line there, Ben. We might just give you a quick dial back to see if we can get you on a slightly better line because um, I don't want anybody to miss the detail of, of the how the relationship breaks down. It's like any relationship, right, where uh, on the face of it, everything looks good, but it's the tiny little details that trip people up. It's only when, when, when the sacking happens that you realise what's gone on behind the scenes. And as I said, like yesterday, the immediate reaction of most football fans was, Jesus, Tuchel's got the sack. They're doing okay. Not terribly in the, in the league and obviously they lost their first Champions League game but then when you see the, the, the stats and the facts behind what's going on behind the scenes because we just don't get that insight from a football perspective in a club until it, the, the sacking happens um, but I mean the, the Todd Bowley relationship with, with him now is has come to light and, and Graham Potter is going to be absolutely adamant to stick very close to Todd Bowley after what's happened here because you can't fall out with bosses you, si- you simply can't and I know Eric Ten Hag recently was talking about his relationship with, with the Blazers and he spoke about the fact that, yeah, we do keep communication. We definitely speak every now and again. Um, but that's important. You can't be, you can't be missing the WhatsApps to your, to your bosses. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting to see that the fact that he's the priority, Graham Potter, but they need to make it happen today, you'd imagine. But uh, the, 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 the Tuchel stuff and the insight, as Ben has, is, is just fascinating. Yeah, you can read his stuff on cbssports.com. There's a great piece about uh, behind the scenes of Thomas Tuchel sacking how Chelsea lost confidence in him and it, it comes in those details where um, they're like so you're going to help us with the transfer policy and then he goes public with the transfer policy is nonsense they're like well it, yeah, it, it, what? <laughs> you're, it, it's yours you're involved in this yeah and I think the, the nasty thing from, from a lot of football fans perspective was the fact that they spent so much money in recent times over 200 million quid and then still the manager gets the sack so I mean there's one manager who's now spent all this money on all these players and yet a new manager comes in to, to either reap the benefits or suffer the consequences so yeah that's the fascinating thing with football right. scary it's uh, 7.55 I think we can go back to Ben and um, yeah, we'll, yeah we'll go back to Ben we may as well uh, you can hear it Ben okay can you? yeah great um, we were just talking about the, the details there and you've got some great details about it, um, them trying to keep in touch and keep communication going with the the very modern mechanism of a WhatsApp group, which Thomas Tuchel wasn't having too much of. No, I mean, Thomas Tuchel wanted to do things his way with autonomy and the new ownership group were all about communication. And that's because moving forward, Chelsea are looking for a recruitment model that's going to be a bit more similar to Liverpool's, which is decision by panels and also using data. And Tuchel obviously has his own way of doing things that is a little less team-orientated, which is not a huge criticism of Tuchel because there's a whole debate, naturally, around what the best way is to make decisions. But I think that with the new ownership group, Todd Bowley in particular, who's chairman and interim sporting director, has come from the LA Dodgers, where he's still minority owner, and they are very data-led. And Bowley is all about delegation and using experts in different fields to collaboratively come to decisions. And Thomas Tuchel is a football person who is a coach first and foremost. So he wanted his views to be effectively implemented away from the actual coaching on things like player transfers, but he wanted delegation. And he was disappointed in some respects that he was asked to take on a more senior business-orientated or managerial role away from the football at the same time as Chelsea was struggling. And that was the first point when the relationship broke down. They lost 4-0 to Arsenal in America in pre-season. That result shouldn't matter, as I said before. But it did because of how Thomas Tuchel reacted to it. It wasn't about the football itself or the result. It was about the fact that Thomas Tuchel showed he wasn't a fit to this new ownership group with the manner in which he bemoaned that result. And then from there onwards, communication broke down. And With the WhatsApp group, that's very common. Lots of football clubs 
have a WhatsApp group. They go back and forth in it. They drop in transfer targets. But again, it's less about how the communication took place and more about the speed of the response. And because Todd Bowley as interim sporting director, even though he has a lot of very positive qualities, one of them is that he is able to negotiate. But on the downside, he hasn't got the experience specifically around football. So he needed Tuchel to get back to him quickly and urgently and constantly because if everything was empowered by Tuchel and Bowley didn't have that football knowledge to just click his fingers and get things done, even though he's surrounded by other experts, then Tuchel had to be part of that process during the window. And he wasn't. And I think that heavily contributed towards his downfall. The, it, it feels as if this was never going to work because uh, or maybe it would have worked if they got a sporting director in immediately who knew exactly what he was doing and Tuchel could have built a relationship with him. But when that didn't happen, asking Tuchel to do two bits of a job and then it not really working out, um, it suggests that the results, they needed the results to go really well at the start of the season if he was going to have some longer rope. Uh, what else is happening behind the scenes? The, the players seem... There was certainly talk about players being unhappy about different things. We had Graham Hunter on the show yesterday. He said that some of the subs have been looking at what Tuchel was doing on the touchline going, is that what he's saying about us when, when we're on the field? And if he's saying that stuff about us and we're not in the team, then what does he actually think of us? So it wasn't the happiest of dressing rooms. And yet at the same time, you know, obviously the, they had got success together. So there was some residual respect, but it does seem as if there were some cracks appearing with the players and the manager as well. I think respect is the key word and the players are never going to argue otherwise, especially now a manager's gone that won them a Champions League. But it was inconsistency, really, and this comes with big squads too, that Thomas Tuchel, on the one hand, intimated certain players were surplus to requirements and then weeks later they found themselves in the starting lineup. Hakim Ziyech and Christian Pulisic are two good examples of that. And then there's a few at the football club that felt like more should have been done to try and keep Tony Rudiger. And subsequently, it has been revealed that Chelsea didn't do that much in terms of offering him improved terms that were good enough. And he was such a key part of the club as well. And then, unfortunately, for Chelsea during pre-season, there were one or two that just weren't quite right at the very beginning when the squad returned. And even Cesar Aspilicueta is an example of that because he thought he was going to Barcelona. Luckily, from Chelsea's perspective, he wasn't ever going to force his way out of the club and has now decided to stay. So that actually turned into a positive. But Marcus Alonso is another example of a player that wanted out. And then there were mass outgoings, including Christiansen and Lukaku on loan to Inter. And that creates a almost mentality where if you're a player like Ziyech or Pulisic, you're watching the fact that Lukaku's been able to force his way out and get a loan deal to Inter. You're watching the fact that Alonso says he wants to leave. You're hearing the fact the club captain wants to go to Barcelona. So those kind of players are thinking, well, we'll look for a move as well. And it kind of breeds a divided dressing room. And unfortunately for Tuchel, he had to handle that whilst juggling a lot of other plates. So then, as you say, when results don't go your way, the players start to use their own power to kind of make their real feelings clear. And I don't think anyone revolted against Tuchel, by the way. I'd certainly not suggest it's not what I've heard from sources that the players contributed in any way to the sacking of Thomas Tuchel. I think the ownership group saw enough directly from him to make that decision. But what I would say is that if you look at Abramovich during the entire tenure, he was very distant 
and probably never had a meaningful face-to-face conversation with that many, if any of the players, aside from when he was on the field, when they won the Champions League. Whereas with Todd Bowley as interim sporting director and chairman and as a new minority owner and as a person that just has a different approach to how to run a business, he's there at Cobham almost every day. And that will continue for the foreseeable future, even when they appoint a sporting director. So that face time is really key because it means that not only does he see and hear things firsthand, but if he wants to talk to a player and hold a meeting and hear somebody's perspective directly, he'll do that. And that's exactly what happened, that Todd Bowley has been talking to players. And that's not around only Tuchel. It's not around trying to find out whether or not the players want the manager out. It's a broader point of he's hands-on and he wants to hear perspectives. So that's quite rare for an owner to be doing that. And it's a complete move away from how Abramovich handled his business and his football club. So it's never a case anymore of the ownership group hearing whispers or players having to result. It's an open-door policy at Chelsea. And I think before sacking Thomas Tuchel, Todd Bowley, Bed Agbali and the rest of the Chelsea ownership group already felt they knew the full picture and that Thomas Tuchel wasn't a fit. Should he, Ben, have done more? Like, I mean, in terms of attracting players, obviously the manager often leaves things to a sporting director or someone involved in negotiations. Like, And I get the sense from your piece this morning as well that... that Maybe Tuchel was the architect of his, of his own downfall and that he, he potentially, in particular to do with signings, Rafinha being one of them, that maybe he could have been more hands-on and, and, and more direct in negotiations himself? Yeah, I think that's fair. It's tough because it's pre-season, it's a transfer window, it's new owners, it's a Premier League season and a World Cup year. Everything is very condensed and a manager doesn't want to spend too much time and energy chasing something he thinks he can delegate, especially not when he's a head coach by name. But the reality is, is there's fine margins in a number of these transfers. And when you've got a new interim sporting director who doesn't know the industry, the manager is key because Todd Bowley has a lot of incredible qualities. He's a great negotiator and he's very capable, by the way, of holding these meetings because ultimately the old regime are still advising him So he's not just going in completely cold, but it's like a politician where you walk into five diverse meetings in a day and before each one, your assistants and civil servants hand you a briefing document. And Bowley is very good at processing that document and ultimately using it to his advantage. But you still need the manager there to make the final decision. And when Bowley and the American-led consortium joined, they gave Thomas Tuchel the power. They told him that they would back him, but in return, they needed him to be part of the pitch. So then when you look at Rafinha, that was a player that Thomas Tuchel desperately wanted. And obviously they agreed a fee would lead. So at that point, Todd Bowley can't do too much more, but Thomas Tuchel needs to be in the ear of the player because everybody knew that he'd also agreed terms in March with Barcelona and had a decision to make as to whether he was going to wait for Barcelona or join Chelsea instantly on better terms. With Jules Koundé, Chelsea came for him a year ago, couldn't sign him due to circumstances out of their control, came back for him at the beginning of the window and the player looked around London for housing and then they turned to countless other defensive targets before coming back to Jules Koundé. And again, Todd Bowley agreed a, broadly speaking, verbal package to get the deal done. And Barcelona entered the room once again. And Xavi was calling both players, Rafinha and Jules Koundé, and giving them a clear plan. And Thomas Tuchel wasn't. So in the end, Jules Koundé thought, Chelsea have kind of messed me around for over a year. Barcelona really want me. 
and Rafinha thought, Barcelona really want me. It's my dream move. I'll just keep Chelsea on hold. Now, that's not only Tuchel's fault, but it's two examples. And then you've got Ronaldo, where Todd Bowley was very intrigued by Ronaldo. Thomas Tuchel said no. And that, for me from Tuchel's perspective, is perfectly fine because if he's to be given the power as manager, then when he says no, then that should be the end of the matter. But when you decline a player, there's a way of doing it. And I think that it's not just about these examples that I've given. It's about the manner in which they took place. So rather than just accepting that the manager has final say, but he might be asked about different things and different players from his interim sporting director. I think Tuchel saw Bowley more as owner, more as chairman, and didn't necessarily embrace or work well with the interim sporting director title because he was so used to ultimately operating with Marino, who did all the legwork and left him to it. And I think that with Ronaldo, when the player was suggested he was dismissed by Tuchel. So then when Ronaldo was brought up again or when Tuchel's tactics were questioned by the new ownership group and then again asked whether Ronaldo would fix the problem, at that point I think he felt like, why has Ronaldo come up three times? Why do you keep revisiting this? I'm the expert. I'm the head coach. And a lot of fans will hear that and say, you're absolutely right, Thomas. This new ownership group are interfering too much and I think that will divide opinion. But whether or not you side with Tuchel or side with the new ownership group, that relationship in the eyes of the new ownership group became untenable because there was just a constant disagreement over lots of little things. And one niggly disagreement is fine. And five or six start to breed a culture where they don't get on. But after seven or eight of these examples that I've given, the situation becomes untenable because communication started to break down. Yeah, it's like any relationship. It's um, it's tiny little details trip it up, and over a period of time, you know, uh, you're you're eating too loudly, you're breathing too loudly. I don't like the. I, I no longer like you. It's not it's not you. It's me. No, it's definitely you. Uh, it just feels like that divorce was imminent. Can I just ask a little bit though about if is is Graham Potter walking into a situation where he's going to have to get Ronaldo at Christmas and um, put Pulisic in the team for every game, and or or is that? Is, are the problems you're talking about actually short-lived because they'll appoint somebody to the role and Bowley will eventually take a step back? Yeah, I think it's the latter. And that's why I feel sorry for Thomas Tuchel, simply because this transfer window is an anomaly due to the sanctions that Chelsea had before the new owners arrived, due to the speed of the sale, due to new faces and strategies, due to the board shake-up, the amount of outgoings of players and the money spent all have created a storm and maybe any manager that was used to the old regime would have struggled to handle it. And then going forwards, as you say, Todd Bowley won't be the interim sporting director. And I think that his removal from that position is going to be very key. And then from Graham Potter's perspective, he's used to working in a system where decisions are made by numbers and he has his own recruitment specialist and he's quite happy to work under a sporting director. And the best example of that is actually historical at Brighton where Potter and Dan Ashworth had a phenomenal relationship. And that is the model that Graham Potter likes with lots of different analysts, with lots of different perspectives, whether that's football orientated, data orientated, science orientated and so on, all contribute. And then he's allowed to continue his work 
thinking tactically because he trusts the people. And it's that word trust that's going to be really key going forwards. And I don't think that Todd Bowley pretends to be a football expert. And I think that the reason why any new manager can have more confidence and faith in their stability and not think that they're joining a cutthroat club is because you can actually look at the LA Dodgers and see there the culture that's been built and realize from that particular club that there isn't a huge amount of change. There isn't a huge amount of turmoil in terms of players and staff. There is some stability there and people at the Dodgers speak very highly and Potter will do his due diligence. Of course, he'll call and ask around. So that's quite reassuring. I think if you had this ownership group and they weren't involved in other sports franchises, there might be more alarm bells, but the end game, the long-term vision is there for all to see at the LA Dodgers on and off the football field. And that will give Potter and anyone at Chelsea some confidence that Bowley does have a plan. And these, to some extent, are very dramatic, um, but ultimately just teething problems. And um, the other thing with Potter is just that um, he will benefit from areas where Tuchel didn't during the next window and beyond because a sporting director will have arrived, a technical director might have arrived, um, and Chelsea's owners would have had uh, a lot more time at the club to work out the culture and um, any learning. So when you add all of that up, uh, I think that Potter will be the beneficiary of this new ownership group. And Tuchel, unfortunately, um, was the sort of trial and error head coach um, that some would say in many ways through no fault of his own and through some ways because of his personality and his manner of behaving away from the coaching uh, just wasn't the right fit. Yeah, and, and the, the next manager will obviously also be the choice of the new owners and so therefore, you know, yeah, it reflects badly on them if it doesn't work out. So they're going to try and make it work in, in a million different ways and we've seen this in, in all sports that uh, new owners come in, they want their guy and their guy gets first crack at it. So uh, there's a managerial merry-go-round about to get kicked off if, if Potter does take the, the gig and it looks for all intents and purposes that that's more likely to happen than not. Um, w- will Brendan Rodgers be a potential for Brighton? I- is that Leicester job up for him? What, what's your take on that? Because I know you've been covering this story as well. Yeah, I think that Brighton respect Brendan Rodgers and the question is whether Rogers sees the current crop of players and the form that they're in and thinks that that's going to be a more stable gig than Leicester. There's no reason to leave Leicester if you look at Rogers' long-term tenure there because he's still got an ownership group that would like to try and back him, but they've had to take a step back financially because of COVID, their business isn't duty-free, and the fact that Leicester have paid high wages for a long time as a byproduct of their success and then add to that that a lot of money has also been spent on an excellent new training facility. So even though that's positive in the long term, in the short term, it's meant that everything's dried up and Brendan Rodgers is very frustrated. So if Brighton were to make an approach, would he potentially consider a move? And I think from Brighton's perspective, they very much see Brendan Rodgers as a candidate. Brighton would also, in my view, and speaking to sources actually originally based upon the Chelsea gig, I think Brighton would look at Pochettino. It again remains to be seen whether Pochettino would look at Brighton. And wouldn't it be funny as well if Thomas Tuchel considered Brighton? I don't think that one's a possibility. But Brendan Rodgers will be in the mix for sure. He's a manager that Paul Barber, the Brighton CEO, really likes and respects. 
And I think it's a fit in many ways. And the only question mark from Rogers' point of view is if you remove a few players like Caicedo, for example, a lot of this Brighton squad is aging. And it's in stark contrast to the Leicester squad that Brendan Rodgers has built, where Kasper Schmeichel's gone to Nice, Jamie Vardy's in his last season or two, having just signed a new contract. But there's a lot of young blood coming through from Leicester. And the whole point of that academy that they've spent their money on is there's more to come. Whereas if you remove, say, Caicedo from the Brighton mix, you've got players like Webster, Gross, Trossard and so on, who are all in red-hot form and uh, are brilliant in the way they play. But is there the same youth and depth there? Or does Rodgers kind of have to start and build again? And then how much money has he got in the transfer market? I think that Brighton are healthy financially, but they're prudent in how they spend. So he's not going to get the same kitty as he's had at Leicester in seasons gone by. But where Brighton are now and the fact that this season they could get into European football could well be of appeal to Brendan Rodgers. And I think there's definitely a a job in the Premier League that Rodgers right now, if it was available, would leave Leicester for simply because of the situation. Now, Brighton may be that job. If it isn't Brighton, he might wait for an Aston Villa with Gerrard under pressure. I don't think he'd have any problem (laughs) to go to Everton either, despite the Liverpool links. But it's those kind of jobs. And at the moment, because of Brighton's form and how well run the club is, and that's in stark contrast, at least in terms of financial health to Leicester at the moment, I do think it is a possibility that Brendan Rodgers would consider Brighton if they come calling. Okay. Sorry, one last question. You've been really good with your time, but the the dinner that Todd Bowley hosted for the other chairman, is that maybe where he found out about the buyout clause in in Graham Potter's contract? Because that became public very quickly over the last 24 hours, but obviously in football it might have been a bit of an open secret. From that dinner, he appears to have got um, a left-back, Karnay Chukomenka, and now a manager. So (laughs) however expensive and, and nice it was, it seems to have been worth it from his perspective. Yeah, he got derided for that meal, and it just shows you the novel approach can pay off. And instead of thinking of football clubs as rivals, I think Bowley wants to work collectively and collaboratively. And he also has a good relationship through Clear Lake Capital, the majority owner at Chelsea, with Newcastle's owners as well, because the PIF, the Sovereign Wealth Fund, are part of the investment portfolio of Clear Lake Capital. And they were seen together at Stamford Bridge, Newcastle and Chelsea's owners. And this is what we're going to see is a number of executives talking very openly. But I don't think that dinner was the place where the release clause was known about I think it was before that to be honest because there's a number of people in football at lots of different clubs that when Potter suddenly becomes available and he was linked with Spurs a few years back as well they've always said the same thing that there's a release clause there and that's just kind of credit to Brighton in many ways that they accept their position even as a Premier League club at the moment are in a European position and they're not going to stand in Potter's way and it also tells you that lots of clubs are lining him up, whether that was Spurs historically, whether that's the FA for England and now Chelsea. So I think Bowley at that meal definitely broached the Kukurea and the Chukwemeka subjects and each of them paid off and he was able to complete those deals very quickly. But with the clause, it wouldn't remotely surprise me if even people at Chelsea's old regime were well aware of what it took to release Potter. 
because from Paul Barber's point of view at that meal, he's not going to talk about his manager leaving and give the finances in such an informal setting, but it could well have provoked a relationship after that meal where they had a more private conversation more recently, and that was when Bowley realised that Graham Potter was very gettable, and the speed at which this appointment has happened definitely confirms that this wasn't a loss to Dinamo, a sacking, and then a mad scramble to try and find a manager. Because to get a meeting yesterday with Potter, to know you can get him financially and that Brighton give you that blessing, it's absolutely obvious that Todd Bowley was starting to line up Graham Potter probably a week or two ago, not a day or two ago. Yeah, Ben, great stuff. Thanks a million for joining us. Cheers. All the best. That's Ben Jacobs there. His piece is excellent. It's on cbssports.com. You should uh, check it out. A reminder, OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. We're going to speak with Garrett Roberts about Liverpool next. OTB. You heard uh, Amy Rushkai there, Gold's women's football correspondent, speaking with Karen and Kathleen in this week's episode of Koi Gig Pod, which is available now, previewing the start of the WSL season this weekend. Koi Gig Pod on OTB is in association with Cadbury FC, official snack partner to the Republic of Ireland women's national team. Now, a little bit late because of the uh, the breaking uh, news about what's happening at Chelsea. We're getting to Liverpool and um, just trying to find out what exactly is going on. Gareth Roberts is with us. Gareth, good morning to you. How are you? Morning. Uh, I've been better, fair to say. <laughs> um, is it just that Joe Gomez was really bad last night and that's the, the problem? Or is there something more fundamental going on here too? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a good night for Joe, obviously. And he's he, he subbed off at half-time and, and rightly so. But he's not alone in, in being someone that could have been subbed off. I think, um, you know, it was one of those performances where a lot of people are using the word now malaise. Um, and that might be a little bit dramatic, but... It did seem to be across the team. And and what was worrying for me was just sort of some of the basics just weren't there. I mean, there was a point there where Fabinho misses three tackles in a row. uh, And that is very un-Fabinho-like. There's a point there where Mo Salah puts his hand up to receive a ball. He receives the ball and he just completely miscontrols it. Um, we can see Trent, Alexander-Arnold and Virgil van Dijk, both who've been absolutely brilliant for Liverpool, uh, making fundamental, basic mistakes. Uh, you've got van Dijk giving penalties away, which he didn't do for 150 games for Liverpool. Now he's given two away in one season. Um, so, you know, there appears to be a, a collective issue. Um, so, you know, you started off mentioning Joe Gomez, but I mean, you can mention players right through the team who aren't playing to the standards we know they can do. Um and it might it may seem basic, but they look knackered to me. They look they don't look on it sort of physically or mentally. And and you know, I wouldn't want to question things like desire and attitude and things like that, because they've given us so much this group. You know, they've won us the league, uh, they've won us the European Cup, they won us two trophies last season and won ninety two points in the league. So to, to suggest there's some kind of drop off among their actual attitude, I can't see how that would just turn so quickly. I really can't. So it, it must be more fatigue. It maybe is a hangover from the fact that, you know, they went so much for those four trophies last season and only ended up with the two and ended up with the two that, you know, aren't top of the list, if we're all being honest. So I think all these factors coming together, plus the injuries, uh, plus the fact that, they didn't reinforce till really late in midfield. Um, all of these things are coming together almost like a a swirl of dirty water, if you like. And, and you know, I think what's concerning is that, you know, if you don't pull things together pretty soon, the, the season could disappear down the plug hole. 
this Liverpool team, Gareth, I mean, they're, they, we mentioned at the top of the show today, like they're known for their intensity and yet the, the running stats that have come out across Twitter over the last uh, number of days are quite concerning when you look at them in comparison yeah. to other Premier League teams and also even comparison to Liverpool at the start of last season. Like, what can you put that down to? Like, you see some of the players maybe strolling around the pitch and look, yeah, the cynic can maybe say it's an attitude thing, but maybe you're right. Like, maybe it is just a just a fatigue issue. Like, but but it has to be concerning for Jurgen Klopp at this point. Oh, 100 percent. I mean, you know, we all know, don't we, that the you know the motto from from Pep Linders is intensity is our identity, and they've got that up on the wall around the club and things like that, but. That hasn't been the case. And that's what I mean before about, about the basics. You know, you, you can look out, you can expect poor form, you can expect injuries, but I don't think you expect to see a lack of intensity from Liverpool. But they are getting outrun. They are getting outthought, outfought. Um, and, and that's concerning. I mean, you know, you look at last night and, you know, within 40 seconds, Napoli have hit the post. Uh, not long after, after they've got a penalty and the one nil up, and it, it, it's a pattern that keeps happening. That Liverpool are starting games really slow. That teams as well are starting to fancy themselves, which would be a concern for me, and I'm sure it's a concern for Liverpool as well. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not someone who likes to big up Everton for obvious reasons, but I expected Everton to sort of be in their shells, to defend the box, to to fight for the ball, and to not be particularly expansive. But they look like a side at the weekend that fancied themselves. And I think that's what we're seeing more and more now. I think, you know, teams are looking at Liverpool and saying, well, I think we can get at them. I think we can get at the back line. I think we can get at them down Trent Alexander-Arnold's side. It's not the first choice midfield. Um, the midfield hasn't got the legs of, of, of previous midfields, etc., etc., etc. And all these things are coming together. And it's just make, Liverpool are making it harder and harder for themselves as time is going on. It's only... It's only, what, two wins out of seven now this season. And look, you don't want to be overly dramatic and you don't want to write anything off and things like that because it is still really early. Liverpool have got two home games now, Wolves at the weekend and then Ajax in the Champions League. You know, two wins there would go a long way to making things feel a lot better. We've got people starting to return now from injury. I mean, Thiago comes on last night and his, his cameos you know, eye-opening really, you know, he's putting in more challenges than in 27 minutes than the whole midfield did in the in the, in the the game previous to that, uh, which tells you something. So I think he can have a real impact. Jota fit would have a real impact. But, you know, some of the decisions right now, I think when I was on here the other week, I, I don't really understand why we're not playing Nunes at every point, really. You've spent a lot of money on him. You need him to bed in. You need him to fit in with teammates. And to not be starting them last night, I thought was a bit of a strange one because we know what Bobby Firmino can do. We know what he's capable of, but we need Nunes to bed in and fast. We need him scoring and fast. And one of my concerns when I'm watching Liverpool now is I'm not sure what this Liverpool's, what a goal from them looks like. And what I mean by that is when we had the established front three, you saw patterns of play over and over again that other teams couldn't deal with that would result in Liverpool goals. At the moment, we seem to be relying on Diaz for magic to take two or three players on to get it to go outside and put it in the corner. And look, goals like that are fantastic to see, but they don't feel like systematic goals that are when because everything's clicking. Because everything is not clicking; it's the opposite of clicking. It's unclicking yeah. right now. <laughs> the um, <clears throat> the Salah uh, fewer touches per game at the moment. The Athletic did their piece during the week. It, it feels mm. like he's still touching the ball in the right areas, but just less and like. 
that's not what you want. You know, he's supposed to be one of the best footballers in the world and he just isn't playing like it at the moment. Yeah, he's, he's oddly become sort of a creative player. I mean, I've seen something saying he's, you know, he's created some of the most ch- chances in the league. He's right up there in terms of that particular stat, but that's not the one we want to see him top of the league of, if you like it, it is goal score. And we know we can be fantastic in terms of winning games for Liverpool. And, you know, he scored 40 odd goals in a season for Liverpool. So to not have him sort of in and around the box more than he is. It, it is is a little bit confusing for me, particularly when you know we we had the red card for Nunes, the the, the daft head, but he's out for three games. Uh, to me, I thought, well, why why wouldn't you put Mo Salah through the middle there and get him on the ball more and get him in the box more and getting him in threatening areas more? If you look at his his heat maps, obviously he's he's very much he's he's chalk on the boots almost at times on the right out there, and and it feels like that's in readiness. For, for linking with Nunes, but then Nunes is not even there last night. So I don't know. It, all, it it looks a bit muddled. It looks a bit confusing, but you know, it is a manager that brought us the league title for the first time in 30 years. It is a manager that's brought us a lot of good times. And, you know, we've just got to sort of keep it under for now. I, I know that, you know, the, we're almost crisis club of choice uh, right now. And that's how it's always going to be, particularly after, you know, one of the, well, the heaviest defeats in Europe since 1966, I think it is. So that's not Liverpool. That's not Liverpool's identity. That's not what Liverpool are about. But very, very quickly, they need to find themselves. And, you know, again, another concern from last night is you, you, you think at our time, a rocket goes up them. You know, you think that there's going to be teacups flying and all the rest of it, all the cliches. And then they come out and concede another one. And it's equally as daft as the previous ones that they've conceded. And, and you know, the, the goals, the, the manner of the goals, they just see Napoli playing simple one-twos and, and see our defenders standing there like statues. You know, you can't help wondering what, what is going on right now. Like Gareth, it's probably very easy after last night, especially to look at Joe Gomez and say, OK, quite easy to take him out of the starting team. Maybe you put Joel Matip in there automatically. Yeah. At what point, though, does, does the magnifying glass have to come down on Trent Alexander-Arnold? Because, you know, it, it, people often talk about his arrogance and the way he walks around the pitch. And he gets away with it, obviously, when he, when he does things like he did against Bournemouth and finishes the ball off like that. Yeah. And his attacking play is obviously excellent, usually. But, but at what point does Jurgen Klopp have to really take a look at Trent and, and his really poor performances so far this season? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they're talking about it behind the scenes. You know, you know, like like any manager, really, what manager in the modern day would throw their player under the bus? Uh, there isn't many of them because we know the headlines that it results in and, and the talk that it results in. But I'm sure behind the scenes, he, he can't be happy with some of that because, as we've already said in this chat, it's basic stuff. It's not following your runner. It's not committing all out to being in a certain space at a certain time to try and deny the opposition. To just see him strolling around you know, on three or four occasions and, and vital occasions that have ended up resulting in a goal. It's not the first time this season as well. You know, there was a there was a goal earlier in the season where, you know, Milner's having a go at Van Dijk. But equally, you know, you wondered about about Trent on that one as well. Um, as you say, going the other way, um, you know, he is vital to Liverpool. He, you know, he's he can whip a, a superb ball in. His, his range of passing is unbelievable. He scored a great goal, as you mentioned, against Bournemouth. But, it's got to be the fullest. He's got to work hard first and foremost. They all have. They've got to track back. You know this system with three in midfield and with it not quite having the legs that it it has on previous occasions. They've all got to work. And at the moment, as we've already said, opponents are working harder than them. 
and perhaps as well, you know, the gaps closing now. I mean, it was always it always felt like that Liverpool were the fittest team in the league essentially. However, they were being set up behind the scenes, the training regimes and all the rest of it. It always felt that Liverpool could run and run and run and run forever. Now it feels like that gap's closed a bit and that other teams are doing exactly the same thing. And you were you know, a lot of managers talking about counter pressing and pressing and all that kind of stuff. You know, that is now the de facto way that, you know, lots and lots of teams are setting up. So if they're just setting up matching Liverpool or, or better in Liverpool in terms of heart, desire, fight, running, etc. It could be simply one of those problems. So Liverpool have got to somehow get back, get those levels back up. But the problem is as well, you know, going back to the injuries, you've got players there that look knackered, that look shattered, that can't run. You know, Fabinho for me is absolutely vital to Liverpool. He's the only one really who can play that spot in the squad. And he looks off it. He look he looks miles off it to me at the minute. You know he's he, he's dangling out legs. He's he's in the sort of slipstream of attackers, and and he's you know he's nowhere near them. He's not he's not in the right place at the right time, which he always seemed to be in the past. He looks like someone who could do with the rest, but there's no one to come in and perform his role. Equally, Milner, you know, you wouldn't. Yes, he signed a new contract. Yes, he's staying around at Liverpool, but. I wouldn't really expect them to be starting games. I'd expect them to be filling in. I'd expect them to be a, a break glass at times. Yeah. To see them starting games but just tells you where we are right now. I think that's really interesting because the, the reason he's starting games is because they haven't signed enough players over the last couple of seasons. It's not just this transfer window. They have been very careful with their spending. Yeah. Now, they, they, you know, in fairness, when they identify a target, they go out and they get him and we don't really hear much by way of, of build-up or months and months of, of speculation the way you do at other clubs and they're to be commended for that but the net spend is not what you would expect when you do have the best if not one of the best managers in world football and he is what's keeping Liverpool at the level they're at at the moment I don't think there's any doubt about that you know like he has taken players and turned them into global superstars by virtue yeah. of the coaching and the tactics and the approach so like I don't know the owners it, it feels to me like the owners have not backed Klopp in a way that you should when you have such a genius in charge. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, the, the, the signing of Arthur, um looks a bit panic. It looks a bit break glass. It looks a sort of, you know, that's the best that we could do because we left it so late. Thought it was interesting that the manager was, you know, so forthright almost in his answers about the midfield towards the end of the of the transfer window. He's normally someone who bats away any conversations around that. Indeed, he was doing uh, earlier on in the year. But now he sort of seemed to be saying, well, yeah, I do need someone. And, and you know, we, we got in a lad on loan who, yeah, he, he could turn out to be great, but equally he hasn't played for four months. He comes on for a few minutes last night and it's going to take, you know, a while for him to find his feet. Liverpool needed someone world-class coming in who, who could pretty much hit the ground running. Uh, and they haven't got that and they are now officially short. Anyone, anyone can see that. Um, and it, it does seem like sometimes all the eggs go in one basket in terms of targets. And, you know, they obviously targeted um, Chiwameni. Is that how you say his name? I always get his name wrong. <laughs> um, he, he goes to uh, Real Madrid. And then it's like, well, what's the next option down the list? And I'm like you in that, you know, I know that they have the targets, they stick to it and they get them. And that's work for them. Obviously, they did that with Van Dyke, they did that with Alice and things like that. But I think in this particular situation, I think lots and lots of people were saying, 
but you've got Milner and, and you've got his age. You've got Henderson and his age and his form. You've got um, Naby Keita and his injury issues, Thiago and his injury issues, Oxlade-Chamberlain and his injury issues. You've got Curtis Jones, who's a young lad, Harvey Elliott, who's a young lad, Carvalho, who's coming, who's a young lad. So anyone could see it, really. And it's like, and even, I think they can say, another concern now is, you're looking at it and saying, well, the, 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 now, the eggs now seem to be in the Bellingham basket for next summer. Well, one, what happens now? What happens between now and then? How low is Liverpool for? What can they actually expect from this season going forward? But two, what if he decides not to come? What if what if someone else swoops in, offers them more money? That Real like, Madrid, like they've yeah. you know they have space, and it, it will have space. FS, hmm. And we know that FSG, you know, will will pull the plug on things if you think it gets too expensive. You know, we've seen them do that in the past, so. You know, that, that's got to be a worry. I don't doubt that there are other targets and other players on Liverpool's radar. And, you know, they have got better scouting systems and software and staff than anyone on the internet's got. <laughs> um, so I'm sure that they've got plenty of people there, but they, but they need to be they need to be 100% that these people are coming in because if this is allowed to continue and, and, and there is an over-reliance on players that well, can't be relied on, essentially then there's only one direction, isn't there, for Liverpool? And I think, you know, with Naby Keita, it's now, it's now finally been said that it's a serious hamstring issue. Now, he's a player that Liverpool have paid 50-odd million for and, and should be a player right now who you can call on. OK, you can't really call him out. It's an injury. Injuries happen. But it's a regular issue for, for Liverpool, or for me as a Liverpool fan looking in at it, that he's not been there at the times where Liverpool need him. And... Frankly, you need the players to be there at those times. I think you mentioned the word uh, forthright there, Gareth, when you're talking about but Jurgen Klopp and, and like even listening to his comments after the match last night, talking about I think we need to rein, you know reinvent ourselves almost. Like, have you noticed as someone who has watched uh, Jurgen Klopp's demeanour, uh, you know, over a long period of time since he's taken over at the club? Have you noticed a, a shift in the way he has carried himself, a shift in his demeanour over the last? Well, I guess this season especially. Like, has that has that changed ever so slightly? I mean, it's difficult to say, isn't it? Because you know, anyone can see that it's gone wrong uh, this season so far. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not the plan to win two out of seven. It's not the plan to draw at Fulham and draw at Everton and, and get battered by Napoli last night. So, quite, quite clearly, in those situations, he's going to be asked more difficult questions. Um, you know, he's asked about his job last night, um, which I find surprising. But you know, if he therefore ends up getting touchy about that. Well, he's a passionate man. He's an emotional man. Um, and we like that about him, by the way. You know, that, that is, that is a, a good side of Jürgen Klopp. And, and it's something that suits the Liverpool job. We want to see someone who's passionate about managing Liverpool. But the, the bit that got me, like I say, is just that, he, you know, he was, he was quite open about the fact that he seemed to want someone. Um, he didn't really say who. He, he said he wanted a body. He wanted someone in midfield, and that's that's essentially what happened in the end with the with the loan signing. But that felt to me a little bit like when they left it all window, and then eventually went and got Kabak and, and got Davis, who never even played for Liverpool uh, in the first team. So you know it. That that's not good planning. That's not good thinking. That's not a good way to operate. And and I think it, one of the questions a minute ago was, you know, that 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 seems to have been the case now for a few windows. And it's th- this conservative approach, stroke gambling, almost on, you know, Klopp's genius, if you like. 
I think is starting to fail a little bit and he needs to be backed. He needs to be backed by the owners. They need to find money down the back of the couch, whatever it might be. They need to go and buy top class players because that's happened before and it's worked. Yeah, Alisson, exactly. top class player, that's worked. It. Van yeah. Dijk, top class player, worked. Yeah. So, you know, you've got to go and do that again. And to say someone like, I like Curtis Jones. I think he's a talented lad. I love seeing a lad come through the ranks and things like that. But to be calling on him right now and say, go and fix the midfield, Curtis. Well, quite clearly not. That You, you can't do that. You can say that to someone like Thiago. And, and like I say, you know, he was transformational almost last night. Straight away, you see someone on the front foot taking people on in midfield, putting in more tackles. He looked fresh. And I'm really looking forward now to seeing him against Wolves at the weekend but imagine we had one more of his ilk, one more of his standard someone who could deputise for, for Fabinho as well and get him fresh, get him fired and get, get him to the level where he should be that's what should be there and that's what should be there now and it's missing and you have to say well it's on recruitment can I just ask you one last one, Gareth, for me? Uh, j- just on the the safety advice handed out by, by Liverpool to, to the fans heading over to, to Naples for this yeah. match. And, and uh, look, looking on Twitter last night, I saw some uh, strange videos of, of Liverpool fans trying to get on to coaches and, and being asked for, I think, someone with a, with a handheld camera taking photographs yeah. of them. Um, and I know there's probably a lot of Liverpool fans, Irish Liverpool fans, watching this morning and listening this morning who maybe were over and, and coming home from the game. Did you anecdotally hear of anything strange on the ground? Like it was probably fairly unique in itself to have that that uh, official safety advice coming through the club as well. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there was a fuss over that safety advice, which I didn't really understand. I've got to be honest, because it got turned into, well, isn't Liverpool a threat to people coming over here, and isn't the crime in Liverpool, and all this sort of what about Um But the advice was built on how Liverpool have experienced things when they've been to Naples in the past. So, you know, I've I've got friends who've been attacked in Naples in the past and they're not hooligans. They're not people who go looking for trouble. They're in bars, they're in restaurants, they're enjoying the city and you've got groups of people turning up and targeting them. Now, I don't know of that going on in Liverpool. I'm not saying Liverpool is a crime-free city. Of course it isn't. But if that was going on in Liverpool... I wouldn't have a problem with a, a club that was coming here telling their fans that they need to be careful. And that's what Liverpool did. And it, it was built on evidence. It was built on not only fans, by the way, being targeted, but journalists covering the club in the past as well have been targeted when they've gone over to Naples. So, you know, this how dare they say something, I didn't really understand. And yet, as you mentioned, some very concerning treatment of them last night and being photographed and you know show, showing up their ID and the ticket and that before they're allowed to get on a bus that takes them to the ground. I mean, what what society we're living in here? This is people going to a football match. Going to a football match is not a crime. Being a Liverpool fan is not a crime. Being from this country is not a crime. And yet you're treated there as though you've committed one. And that is wrong and that should be called out. Um, and I know Spirit Shankly have already said there's a you know, they're speaking to the football supporters um, association in Europe. I probably got that name wrong, but you know, it's it's a body that represents fans in Europe. There's a conversation already going on there, but in any way possible, particularly after what happened in Paris, this type of behaviour by police forces and authorities abroad should be challenged. And you wait for, you know, where are they in this? You know, Naples has got a reputation around how fans visiting that city are treated. So, so where's the sanctions from UEFA around that? You know, when do we say, well, if you can't control that situation, you know, the match has to be played elsewhere. 
And as I say, going back to the what about tree around it, I don't remember that ever being the case at Liverpool. I, I don't ever remember people saying that's an unsafe city to visit as an away fan. So I was absolutely fine with the advice that was issued by Liverpool because it was the right advice and it was proven how they were treated over there that it was the right advice. Gareth, we'll leave it there for now. Plenty more to talk about over the coming weeks. Talk to you soon. Cheers. Cheers, fellas. Thank you. That's uh, Gareth Roberts there. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter for your Liverpool takes and uh, info and information and discussion. It's 8.44 this morning. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Now, the Premier League is back. We've teamed up with one of Europe's largest sports events, ticketing and hospitality companies, Champions Travel, to give you the opportunity to win a €250 Euro Champions Travel voucher every day this week. They can be used on Premier League match trips as well as a host of other sporting events. Daily winners will be entered into a grand prize draw where one lucky winner will win a trip from a selection of Premier League games with flights and two nights accommodation included to enter. Tell us who this man is explaining his tactics against Darwin Nunez. And what I was hoping to do was, like Anna said before, I was hoping he was going to hit me. And- you can uh, tweet us your guests on our main Twitter account, which is at Off The Ball. Who's this? And what I was hoping to do was, like Anna said before, I was hoping he was going to hit me. And- a pint of wine. 8.44 this morning. Cameron Hill is with us, talking a little bit of tennis. Colin Buig's not here, so you're subbing in for him. Yeah, absolutely. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning, Shane. What's going on? Well, Carlos Alcaraz, he's through. He's into the semi-finals. Absolutely brilliant match at Flushing Meadows this morning. Finished about an hour or so ago. Um, really excellent game. Really excellent match. Um, taking on Yannick Sinner in the quarterfinal. Went to five sets. He won the first set 6-3. 7575 for Sinner. Uh, Sinner had match point in the fourth set Ooh. before Carlos Alcaraz came back and classily finished it off. Uh, so Alcaraz obviously is the rising star in tennis on hard court and up to Wimbledon had been like, ooh, when's he going to win? What's, what's the breakthrough going to be? Now he's in the semi-final? Yeah, absolutely. He's the youngest Grand Slam semi-finalist since Nadal in 2005 and the youngest US Open finalist or semi-finalist since... Uh, Pete Sampras in 1990 Jerry, right. you're firmly in the Carlos Alcaraz fan club I, oh. I can sense every time you talk about him you get a little bit excited you're, we you're, need some new stars well 100% the men's game especially needs them but he's a, he, like I saw one of the points on, on Twitter this morning kind of a behind the it was a very Nick Kyrgios-esque shot returning a serve from behind his own body but he, he pulls those kind of shots out doesn't he like he's he's an exciting player not just a player that gets results yeah he is like I think the problem with him and you know he's very exciting to watch and really he dug it out today, really did, um, and had some excellent forehands, brilliant shots. I think the problem with him is he wants every shot to be a winner. You can see it in the way he hits the ball and strikes it. It's got to be there. It, there's a real grit and power behind it. It reminds me of um, Agassi talked about it in his book Open, that he wanted every shot to be a winner when he was younger and then was told, just hit it over the net the first. They don't all have to be winners. And I think that's probably the last bit of his game that he needs to round off, that you just need the rhythm. You knew Sinner was being very patient, and I felt on a different day he might have snatched it. Casper mm. uh, Ruud is also one of those players who is primed to be a Grand Slam winner over the next couple of years, right? Um, he's like uh, he's Norwegian. He's the first good Norwegian tennis player, really. <laughs> yeah, not to like cast aspersions on all that have come before him, but he's the best they've ever had. And so, like uh, Sinner, also is somebody who I think is kind of. Um, come into the consciousness because he had a good Wimbledon so Sinner Alcaraz and Rude are all players who we will see a lot of in coming years but TFO is a guy who I think not many of us had heard of really before like certainly going as deep as he went he was a straight sets winner 
into the semi-finals. He's an American. He's up against Alcaraz in the semi. Um, so I've noticed, and his sort of backstory seems to be pretty amazing. You know, not from um, a tennis family, not from a tennis stronghold. Uh, his dad was a caretaker, and here he is winning the the most money he's ever going to win in his life. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really, really young um, semi-final, like final four. So obviously, Yvakaraz is nineteen, Francis Tiafoe, who's twenty-four, who dispatched um, of Rafa Nadal in the round of sixteen. Kasper Root, who's twenty-three, and then Karen Kachanov, who's like you know the elder statesman there, twenty-six. So it's really, really young, really exciting. I'd love to see a Rude Alcaraz final. I think Alcaraz just seen him in a Grand Slam final at this stage would be great. Whereas Rude, you feel he was in the French Open final, and I think he was very starstruck by Rafa Nadal because Rafa Nadal just wiped him, wiped the court with him. So it'd be great to see those two. Or I mean, TFO Alcaraz is going to be a massive semi-final as well. Uh, okay, all right. So that's the crack. Uh, that's the story with the men's, the women's semis. Are we at women's semi-final stage? Yeah, golf gone. I was really on the Coco Golf uh, bandwagon and hype train for this one, but yeah, a lot were. Um, Carolyn Garcia dispatched of her, and I think some people think she's going to be the dark horse for this one. Mm. Um, I think it's going to be Shantek. She's Sabalenka in this semi-final, and Sabalenka's grand, but she. She does the basics and she'll work hard, but I think Shvantec just has that X factor when she wants it. She's inconsistent, obviously, but I think it's her slam this time. All right. Sablanka using the uh, the not being allowed to play in Wimbledon to her advantage. She's kind of using that, I guess, uh, unwantedness in terms of to, to use a, a terrible word for it. But like the fact that these Russian and better Russian players weren't allowed to play in Wimbledon, it's clearly motivated someone like like uh, Sablanka. Yeah, yeah, it kind of has. Now, you'd think, I mean, Rublev was really annoyed, and he got to the quarterfinals. Um, he was very, very annoyed that he couldn't play Wimbledon and said that it wasn't really properly done, the way they were kind of just discarded, cast off to the side. Um, but, yeah, Sabalenka's definitely someone who would use that and love something that'll give her a bit of an edge and a bit of a spike. Right, good stuff, Cameron. Thanks for that. Um, Colin will resume normal service on Monday when he'll tell us, I told you all that uh, whoever wins was going to win. <laughs> uh, it's 8.49 this morning. If you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. Uh, you can leave a comment on the YouTube stream as well. We are turning our attention to the uh, Grand Prix this weekend. This is a little bit of Monza action. This is the this is the one that I that I so last year I went to the Spa Grand Prix in Belgium, which was the week before Monza. Made the absolute horrific decision of going to Spa when it was rained out, and then the following week, in the sun in Monza, my favourite driver Daniel Ricciardo goes and wins it. Why so. would you pick to go to Belgium instead of Italy? <laughs> what what possessed you? Because the rain usually makes it a very exciting race in Spa. Right in the middle of the Ardennes forest, you get plenty of rain, but uh, an but absolute it, howler of decision. Italy, like the I know. part of the world to go. Hindsight is twenty twenty, Jer. Even the bad petrol stations have the nicest pizza you've ever had. See, I'd, I'd imagine Jess McFadden wouldn't have made that terrible call, but uh, I unfortunately did. Jess, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. I would, I would choose both. So <laughs> uh, I've been, I'm lucky enough that I've been to both, and they are both great for different reasons. But you're right. Last year was a was a was a bad choice. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what? Still not over it. What's going to happen this weekend? Um, well, if Max carries on his current form, it could be uh, another Max victory. And I think it will be his fifth in a row. Um, so I think it's it's going to be pretty hard to stop Max on his current run of form there. He's looking, he's looking unstoppable this season. 
It was funny last weekend, Jess, at, uh, at Zandvoort, where like we haven't really seen the uh, Hamilton Verstappen rivalry at all this e- this season, and really last weekend was probably the closest they've come since Yas Marina last year. Um, like it was great to see Hamilton pushing him, and obviously ultimately Verstappen overtook him and won the race. But it was nice to get that little bit of uh, nostalgia for that little rivalry last weekend. It was. Um, whether you called it nostalgia or <laughs> PTSD, uh, I guess it depends on how, how you felt uh, last year went. But yeah, it was great. It was great to see a competitive Mercedes package um, because, you know, Ferrari seemed to just keep be like dropping the ball. Um, so that it was, it was good to have at least two drivers pushing Max. Um, unfortunately, it didn't go their way, but it was great. And, you know, we had some really interesting strategy plays. There was a lot for us to kind of unpick following the, when the, the checkered flag dropped, there was loads for us to be asking, like, why did you make that decision? And, you know, why did you put Russell on softs and leave Hamilton uh, out there exposed? And obviously that's where Max uh, got him at the safety car restart. So I, uh, yeah, last weekend was great. It was, it, it, you know, I can't believe we're talking about being surprised that Mercedes are competitive but hey that's 2022 it's funny that Verstappen pretty much all but mathematically has the the title race sewn up and yet does it become a point now Jess where where he turns his attention to records I think that was his 10th win maybe last weekend and Schumacher and Vettel have the the record jointly on on 13 race wins in one season so it's going to become the kind of Cristiano Ronaldo individual records kind of question now for Max surely he's out to get these records do you know what when you ask him about records even about championships you know after after winning last year he said I've completed F1 now I don't really need to win another title I'll always be a world champion um so he's not really that fussed about records I think he's one of those drivers that you know probably a nice to have but it's not really on his hit list he just wants to go out there and win and if that means that he then beats somebody's record then yeah, all right. But he's very like lackadaisical about those things, which is quite funny. Um, I think we get more excited about them than than he does. But yeah, I mean, yeah, if he wins in Monza, he could have this title wrapped up by Japan. Uh, so, you know, that's another two ra- in two races time. So, yeah, it's 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 kind of especially after how close last season was a bit disappointing that we could have the title wrapped up and not really anything to get excited about anymore than the, maybe the constructors. But for people watching it's the drivers is 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 the more important championship so um yeah it's it's a bit of a shame but it just goes to show how right max and red bull have had it this year and they'll they will be especially again dependent on how you saw last season play out this season they will be undoubtedly very deserving uh champions it, it, it's a very important point to make that like most people are very into the drivers championship as opposed to the constructors and yet obviously the the teams um really value that but to that that crossover appeal that we've talked about consistently over the last 18 months um where the casual fan is now tuning in you don't want these processions where we know in advance who's going to win the big prize at the end so uh, I guess a lot of the conversation at the moment is about next year and making sure that there is going to be a proper competition for the Drivers Championship what's your feeling about what next year will actually look like on the basis of what we're seeing at the moment? I think you know we had such a massive regulation change at the start of the season. If you look back through the history books, um, which for casual fans, new fans, I would definitely say go and do because you learn a lot. But we usually get this sense where one team ordinarily will just nail it and they will have a very, very strong 
season um, that can often be as runaway as it has been this year. Uh, I mean, with Mercedes, we had it for multiple seasons. Now, I'm not sure that's going to happen next year. At least the optimist in me doesn't think that that maybe is going to be, we're not, you know, we're not going into another period of uh, one team dominant. I think we are still going to be having um, higher competitiveness because, I mean, for all, for all of Ferrari's maybe blunders this season, they have a very strong car. Um, so if they can learn from this season, tidy up a little bit the internal problems that they've had going on that maybe, you know, they're not as on it as um, Red Bull are in terms of uh, in, in race moments. Um, you know, we could be having, they, they could be coming back stronger for sure. And um, Mercedes, you know, you can't, you cannot say that they they won't have the investment and the wherewithal to go away and go right we got the beginning of the season completely wrong um how do we come back and make sure that doesn't happen they're they're pretty confident that they know what is wrong and over the winter break they'd be able to fix it so if we've got three teams in it next year properly in it six drivers properly in it then that's that's a recipe for for greatness so i'm almost like i'm gonna let this season lie just because of what a massive change it was and for everybody to have come out and got it right, that, I mean, I don't think that's ever happened when we've had a regulation change. So uh, let's leave 2022 as for what it was and for what it is and definitely get excited about next season. Just on, on Ferrari, Jess, that you mentioned there, I mean, promised so much at the start of the season. I think they won two of the first three races and you're thinking, right, this is going to be great. Like some of their strategy calls have been absolutely ridiculous. Um, and even some of the basic errors in operation, like for anyone watching last weekend, I think it was it Carlos Sainz's first pit stop where they put three wheels on the car and you're just sitting there watching pretty sure the car needs four wheels like yeah. some little moments like that where Ferrari have just been all at sea I know like this is obviously their home race at Monza this weekend the pressure goes up more than just a notch uh, talk of a, a new rear wing for them as well to try and maybe catch up to that pace with above the Red Bulls but the pressure is really on them this weekend Jess it is, but they're also used to losing in Monza. So, um, I mean, Charles Leclerc is the most recent Ferrari winner. Um, back in twenty, when was it? Twenty nineteen, I think he won there. It it was great for them. It was amazing, but it was the first time that they'd won in I can't remember how many years, but it'd been a very long time since they'd had. I think Fernando Alonso was the last winner uh, in a Ferrari at Monza. So, it, it they they're kind of used to it being this it's called the cathedral of motorsport and it is absolutely probably one of the i I didn't i've not been able to go to zambort yet um since it's come back and everybody says what an amazing atmosphere it is there but monza i have been to and it is the tifosi are incredibly passionate for ferrari and you do feel like if you are not wearing red you do feel very uh noticeable but um it's it's a great place and i think you know the, the passion hasn't waned at least i hope it won't have done this this year even though i'm sure tifosi are a bit disappointed just given how promising the start of the season was um but yeah i mean pressure's on they're also it's a big celebration for them they're celebrating 75 years of ferrari they've got a, a celebration livery they've bring a bit they've brought a bit of the modern yellow to the car uh, they'll be wearing yellow race suits so, you know, they're still celebrating it, even if maybe on track. They definitely don't think that they've got the right package to be super competitive in Monza. It's, you know, such high speed um, and they just don't think that they've got the right package to be able to compete with the with the, with the the speed of Red Bull. So, yeah, it's probably going to be one where they turn up. They'll be happy if they, if they get end on, if they end up on the podium, 
that that would be enough, I think, for the Tifosi and for Ferrari, especially given um, how much they've kind of they've missed out this season um, or the last few races anyway as well. So, um, yeah, I think it, it will just be one of those ones that I'll be like, it's great, but let's skip it quickly <laughs> are, are you moving on are you reading anything into how pissed off Lewis Hamilton was last weekend um, is that just because he's competitive and so therefore that's all we should expect or is it he's so pissed off because he's got so few opportunities left to win or he's so pissed off because he was actually so close to winning and so therefore you know uh, proving that the car could be competitive next season um, any of these any of these sound cl- plausible yeah I think probably the, the latter um, it was so unexpected um, they, I mean, they, they were pretty confident that they could be competitive in Zambort. And you know, before we, we went into qualifying, we thought, oh, maybe Mercedes are going to have a shoe in it at challenging Max at least. And it was, it was really tight uh, for qualifying, but unfortunately Mercedes weren't quite up there. So the p- fact that they were able to then go really ballsy on strategy um, and have them at a point where all of a sudden we're like, they could win this now. Like they've, 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 nailed this strategically and then it's f1 so if you get a vsc a virtual safety car or a safety car thrown at the wrong time for you all of that hard work just falls away and that's essentially what happened with with lewis and i think you know lewis we were talking about records earlier he is um, a driver who has won a race in every season that he's competed in and 2022 looks like maybe that's going to be the first time he he doesn't so i think it, it was very emotional. He said, you know, the reason why he was so upset was because he knows how hard every single person the Mercedes team is working to get the team back up there where it feels like it belongs. And to not be able to deliver on a win for them, I think he, he took that very hard. He's a very emotional driver. Um, he gets very affected by that. And I think he thought that Mercedes maybe threw it away, but in the heat of the moment, especially when the driver can only see what's going on in front of them, you know, they can't see what's going on uh, elsewhere on track. You know, they only get the information their engineers giving, giving them. Um, I think in the heat of the moment, of course he was really upset. Of course he was very, very disappointed. Um, and afterwards when he spoke, he explained why he said it was just because it was so disappointing that we were so close. We've been working so hard and we have nothing to show for it. I mean, Russell got P2, which was great. I mean, I thought his his own personal strategy calls were spot on. Um, it, he's really proving to be a very, very formidable driver in all aspects, including calling his own strategies, which is what you want, really. Um, but yeah, I think it was just it's pure disappointment um, because we don't know when they're going to get another shot again. They're probably not going to be very competitive around Monza. So, you know, when is that opportunity going to arise again where they could potentially take a, a win home? Um I don't know if that's going to happen. So, yeah, I think it was just super, super a disappointment. It's almost hard to believe, Jess, that, that Daniel Ricciardo won at Monza last year, given all that's happened to him this year. And I know that was mm. McLaren's first win in, in a decade, I think, almost. And, yep. like, when you look at what's happened this season, even for Ricciardo last week at Zandvoort, I mean, qualifying 10 places behind your teammate bruises the ego somewhat. And then, of course, finishing, I think, second last of the, of the cars that finished. Like... At the minute, he doesn't have a seat for 2023, Daniel Ricciardo, which will come as a disappointment to, to all, even neutral Formula 1 fans. Yeah. Is he at the moment now playing for, for a place on the grid next next season? And like, Are there any teams that you think, I know Haas was, was rumoured at one point, but where do you think he ends up next season? Is, is he in danger of not being on the grid whatsoever? 
He asked a million dollar question. I think he genuinely is, well, multi-million dollar question when it comes to driver salaries. But um, I, I, my, more and more, I'm thinking he's going to take a year out um, and not be on the grid next season, which I know would be a big blow for a lot of people. Um, but what he, the problem is with Daniel, he's moved now. Um, this is his third team in Formula One. And he, well, fourth team technically but um he if you count Toro Rosso but obviously that was in the Red Bull family mm. he there's not really many other places that he can go and he has said he wants to be competitive now you mentioned Haas Haas is an interesting prospect because um they look like potentially they're going to get some uh, an injection of investment in the form of a you know that that they've, they've been whispering about getting a headline sponsor Hopefully nothing like a rich energy again. We need to cut or, you know, or a Carly. They kind of need a headline sponsor that's not going to cause them, uh, some, uh, problems. <laughs> but, um, if they do get an injection, you know, it is a good, it is a good team and it could be a place that builds itself around Daniel, um, because of his experience, because he is a proven multiple race winner, not just Monza. He won at Red Bull as well. Um, but that feels like a very, very long time ago. Um, it, it, like it could be a good move for him, but what he doesn't want to end up in is kind of like tootling around in the midfield and not within a sniff of a win ever. Um, McLaren, whilst yes, we mentioned like he's not gotten very, very well. We talk, we were talking about Lando Norris. You know, he's due a win. Um, and with McLaren last season, especially, we, we, you know, he almost did win in Russia. So it's, it's, it's McLaren you wouldn't count as a tootling midfield team. It is competitive and can take advantage of, of opportunities when the top three kind of miss out. But I don't think he really wants to, I don't think he wants, like the Haas move doesn't sound sexy to him. Um, it, so I think, We'll have to see. Um, my my money's on him taking a, taking time out and seeing how the grid shuffles out uh, in future and, and and talking to teams about another drive. But yeah, he's he's kind he's running out of options now, um, and it looks like he can't go back to Alpine, Renault, where he was before. Um, it looks like they are dead set on Gasly if Red Bull can um, negotiate. Colton Herter, the IndyCar driver, if he can get a super license, they want to bring him in to replace Gasly at AlphaTauri, but that's whether or not the uh, FIA will make an exemption for him because he currently doesn't have enough super license points, even though he's done very, very well in IndyCar. So, um, I mean, it's been amazing kind of chess play here um, in terms of silly season. It's been it's been really interesting to work out. But yeah, when the music stops, there might not be any seats left for, for Daniel to, to jump into. So we could be looking at a, a grid without Ricardo's name on it next year. Yeah, scary prospect. I mean, it, um, just a final one for me, Jess. The Oscar Piastri mess finally uh, over mm. to some degree um, and he will drive for McLaren next year. But... Uh, it, it's kind of set a precedent in some ways and just interesting reading some of the, the comments especially from uh, Toto Wolf, the Mercedes team principal where he said George Russell and Esteban Ocon we financed them a long way on and of course the, the insinuation here being that if if you finance a driver of course they should maybe repay you when it comes to being a Formula 1 driver on the grid and he said to know now a precedent has been set that if you are clever you can manoeuvre yourself out as something that's clearly not good for the industry so we will employ even more lawyers for even stricter contracts like mm. it, 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 it's you feel like it's going to change the sport, this Oscar Piastri mess, and it's, it's maybe not going to go away anytime soon. I see. I think that's, I mean, I understand where Toto's coming from, of course, because, you know, as he said, 
these young driver programs, they invest a lot of money in young talent in order to secure the future of the team by having great drivers on their roster. But if you look at the timeline of what happened with Oscar, I actually do not blame the kid one iota of, of, of what for what he did. Um, Alpine just did not show any forthcoming in terms of locking him in a proper contract. If you look at what actually he signed, it was so vague. It just said, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll put you in an F1C at some point. Now, he's already been sat waiting in the sidelines for Alpine to decide what it's going to do. Um, and the, the agreement that he, you know, he, he was November 2021 is when he signed this vague uh, terms sheet. Uh, and he was promised within 10 days, he would have a reserve driver contract and an F1 driver contract that would detail where he would end up at what stage. And it took months. I think it was three months, four months until it actually materialized. Um, and by which point it was still too vague. And they, the Alpine just delayed, delayed, delayed uh, to the point where they actually they ended up sending the terms sheet, uh, sheet to the con- uh, contract recognition board, which is what you have to do for every every contract you have with a driver. You have to send the contract off to the CRB. And um, it was just so vague that when it came to eventually talking to McLaren, because by that point they'd been waiting patiently, nothing materializing. And then essentially what they were shown was, um, you're not going to be racing with Alpine until at least 2025. And we might, we're going to stick you in a Williams. And that's not what Oscar wanted, or that's not what Oscar agreed. Uh, and his management team agreed with Alpine. And so it, what turned out was that he then decided to go and speak to other teams, which I think, you know, I'm not an F1 driver or a F2 driver, but to be left hanging like that by the team that said, you know, it's going to invest in you, it's going to bring you up, it's going to put you in a seat. You know, what is Oscar going to do in the meantime? He's not going to have any uh, bum in seat time, which for a driver is so crucial. So I I actually don't, I understand what Toto's saying. And I think having proper contracts, yes, that is the key here to not having something similar happen to another team. But it's it's kind of all on Alpine um, and not doing that properly. So yes, cool, get more lawyers, write better contracts, but also don't expect your junior drivers to sit and wait when they have such a loose contract agreement anyway. So it's been fascinating for sure. Um, I've often said sometimes, even when we talk about uh, stewarding decisions, it sometimes feel, feels a bit more like a court of law than it does, say, a football match where yeah. a referee just decides. Um, but yeah, this this has really been a courtroom drama. Um, I can't wait for the Netflix coverage of it because if they've got any kind of background stuff on it, it will be explosive. Um, so yeah, I think it, I, I, I don't think it's fair to say it's set a precedent. I think just just get your contracts in order, make sure they're watertight and don't leave young talent which everybody on the grid agrees he is a he's wonder talent um hence why mclaren took the risk with him don't leave them hanging all right jess great stuff as ever thanks a million for joining us cheers thanks so much bye so jess mcfadden there you can get us uh, on 0879 that's the whatsapp number or you can leave a comment on the youtube stream it's competition time premier league is back we've teamed up with one of europe's largest sports events ticketing and hospitality companies champions travel to give you the opportunity to win a 250 euro champions travel voucher every day this week that can be used on Premier League match trips as well as a host of other sporting events daily winners will also be entered into our grand prize draw where one lucky winner will win a trip from a selection of Premier League games with flights and two nights accommodation included 
tell us who this is uh, explaining his tactics against Darwin Nunez. And what I was hoping to do was, like Anna said before, I was hoping he was going to hit me. And you can tweet us your guess on our main Twitter account, at Off The Ball. Uh, up next, we're going to talk to Jamie Walt. We're also going to hear a little bit from Kenny Cunningham. Quick break after this. OTB AM. Kenny Cunningham, any interest in the Bose job? <laughs> definitive next or no answer to this one, please. Exclusive. Definitive, Exclusive. Definitive. Are you a dark horse for the Bose job? Or? Oh, the Bose. Ron Air Kenny. Oh sorry. Oh sorry. Yeah, I thought that was an off, I thought that was an off air comment. No. I wouldn't be who wouldn't be interested in the Bows job. Let's be honest. Seriously though, because that stature. You've had ambitions before. I this was Champions League night. It is Champions was, League. Oh, it is Champions League. All oh, right, yeah. sorry. You're diverting, are you? You've you, you've champions, you know, you've you've had management ambitions before. Your name <laughs> your name has been touted. You're just talking in off the top months. of your head now. We've, not, we've never had a conversation about my managerial ambitions. I I, I heard your you're name. A massive presumption. I there. heard your name massively just connected with. The, but you know who you remind me of? That bet uh, bet Rigby on on Sky News just storing it up. Prime Minister's uh, question time. You know, just are shouting and screaming at uh, <laughs> Boris Johnson. He's leaving number ten. She's shouting and screaming from about twenty yards away. That's gonna, what you're attempting to do now. I'm going to issue a come and get me plea to Sky News. <laughs> if you're not going to issue a come and get me plea to Bose. Or is it to the electorate? Uh, well, that, that took a bit of a tangent. Uh, who wouldn't be interested is what I took from it. <laughs> Up the Bowers. Yeah. That was the other thing I took, yeah. yeah. Well, Kenny informed. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, you would have said he was closer to shells geographically, but maybe, maybe mentally he's closer to Bose. And wouldn't it be interesting? Charismatic manager, Kenny Cunningham. I'd certainly play for him. Wouldn't it be interesting? Uh, OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Now, the underdogs are back. And uh, this, I don't know if you're all, I don't know if you've all been fans of the TG Car show, but it really helped Kieran Donahue cement his place on the uh, Kerry football team. That's how long it's been going all the way um, back. I don't know, is that two decades or so? Uh, that was the football. They've done... They've done hurling, they've done uh, women's football, they've done camogie, and they're back to hurling. And I'm delighted to say Jamie Wall is going to be one of the selectors this year, and he joins us now. Jamie, can to talk to? Ma, sure, August 2 fan. Quisic ma. Nice. Tommy, Bjognok Kraken, I'll let you on Gwilga. Bjognok, Shayshin, Atagumsa. August 2 fan. Yeah, on Will Post, all are good. Neil, Neil Post, or Bet, all are good. Um, how is your how is your Irish? Have you had to do a, a quick refresher course in it, or maybe your floor the whole time? Um, some bit, yeah, not too bad. Like um, we'd I'd speak with Mam at home a bit here, and um, I've obviously been doing a small bit with GABO as well, so that has kept it some bit sharp. But um, even to be honest, like when we do the camps and we go in and you meet John Allen, and he's straight away just bang Irish the whole time it kind of takes me about a few hours to kind of get up to speed with himself and Claire O'Connor they'd be a bit better than I am at it so uh, but it's great I, I actually really enjoyed that side of the whole thing actually just uh, you know coming away from the weekends just kind of thinking God I've actually used my Irish for, for a couple of days here so that even that in itself for me has been great I was going to say because like um, there's a period in all our lives where we're like oh Jesus I really wish I could speak better Irish and um, you know, my kids going to school over the last couple of years it's definitely brought it back to me I'm like I can't understand why I didn't do more about this so you have the opportunity not, not alone to like have good crack on telly watching some of the best uh, underdog herders in the country but also kind of just re-immerse yourself in your own culture big time yeah like that's 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 just a bit of it that's um, kind of like a, a nearly an unintended consequence that I really enjoyed like it's just getting to actually use your Irish again flat out and that's what it is Joe, realistically like you said 
um, the kids are, are bringing it home now so you're kind of using it that bit more like and it's it's the same for everyone like it's just pure practice like it's it's a language thing like with any language if you don't use it you you get out of the habit of it like no matter how good or bad you are at it like so um that side of it is is, is a nice is a nice thing and i think you know it's it's one of the big things i suppose about tg car like uh, that that i've always enjoyed is that you know when you're watching the league and and the club games and the underage games that you do you know find you're stuck in the language and you pick things up quite quickly like i mean i know lots of people who don't have loads of irish but they seem to understand the TG Car commentary because they always say to me like oh you said such and such about this fella like and I'm kind of like she said I didn't know you had Irish and it's like oh no well they have it then like so um, so it, it certainly it sharpens sharpens the blade for people a bit you'll have to learn the, the couple of swear words as well Jamie the couple, couple of fuckle on the on the sideline to to really hammer <laughs> home your, your, your instructions that's probably another part of it I think I think I'm better off actually not knowing them if I don't know them I can't say them <laughs> um, at least You've got a there's a strong cork flavor there. You mentioned John Allen, like that's uh, that probably makes you feel a little bit more at home as well. It's uh, there's always cork lads everywhere. Proper order, I, I'm sure you will say. Big time, yeah. Look, to be honest with you, like for me, probably one of the main attractions with the whole thing is getting involved with somebody like John Allen. Like he's, um, you know, Jerry, you were talking about the the last uh, how long the underdogs is going on, but like I was thinking how long it is since Cork won in All Ireland that it's actually John Allen was the last All Ireland winning manager for us back in 2005 so as as a Cork person obviously like getting to just be in his presence and listen to him and, and learn from someone like him has been it's been unreal to be honest with you even like I just find sitting with him at lunch sometimes and just you know you just actually sit back and you're like consciously in your head it's like I'm going to shut up here for five minutes and just listen to this man because um, he's he's very much a kind of a understated but like kind of that wisdom kind of it really just flows from him like so I, I really have just enjoyed um just sitting back and shutting my mouth for five minutes to be honest with you and, and listening to him one of the things that has also kind of made me uh, fall in love again with the language is just how brilliant it is at, at capturing certain things and what you're talking about John Allen uh, he's a C in the Irish like that's when you when you talk about him I'm kind of that's what I, and I don't know if you have an English word that's the same that's like <laughs> wise man gentle you know somebody you would follow yeah. uh, like uh, somebody you, you need to listen to and suck the knowledge out of it's too many words but he's a C and um, yeah. uh, like you know what what is that like because we need more John Allens in our lives well like for me for me like we'll say even on a, on a personal sense like you know just uh, like I obviously have my eyes on on management and coaching and that whole journey and it is very much a journey like and you see like John who, who's kind of has has kind of gone through the journey we'll say and has so much has learned so much in it like and so for me like you just someone like him you straight away are gravitated towards him but like I think it's even just like he's just very interested in people. I think like you know he's a former principal. Like he talks to, he's massive. It, it's like I, I reckon hurling is his second favorite thing. To be honest with you, like it's traditional music is his favorite thing really. Like and he talks to Claire and myself about music nearly as much as hurling. Like and he's he's interested in old music, new music. I was at Arctic Monkeys last week in in Spain and he was sending me messages between Namunkaha Arctic and asking about this and sent me a message even saying that they were, that their performance at Reading in Leeds was on BBC. Like, and I'm kind of like, how do you know all of this about everything? Like, like we're not even talking about hurling and you're like, you're putting me to shame. Like, so 
Um, like just to be honest with you, like you just you just sit and listen to him, whatever the topic is, and he's had such a, a like he's seen so much in the world. Like obviously they got those amazing holidays with Cork back when they were in All Ireland finals and that. But like even with with the whole Limerick, um, he was involved with Limerick obviously as well in, in 2013 and that. So like he's been out to to JP's fabled parts of the world. Um, that's we'll hear kind of stories about the Limerick class getting out and that. And like he's just he's seen so much of the world. He's seen so much of life in that that like you'd be a fool not to be kind of just sitting there kind of listening to the likes of like you said John Allen's in our lives like and it's just great for me and for the players um, that are involved and for Claire and you know for all of us and even for even for the production crew like I know for a fact that some of them are, are sitting there just listening to John as well like and it's just just to get to work with someone like that that has that kind of that um that just worldly experience and kind of knowledge and wisdom, I think is a better word even than knowledge. Like it's just been, it's been great. It's funny, Jimmy, you talk about John being, you know, more interested nearly in people. And, and like we were talking earlier about Graham Potter, the Brighton manager, you know, being interested in emotional intelligence and, and probably similar thing as well, people and having interests outside of your, your chosen sport. Like for you, when you're, when you're, as you say, sitting there over the lunch table, like have you always been that kind of manager where you're, you're, you're nearly, soaking everything up like a sponge and, and maybe taking tippets from, from different managers you watch the Cody's and wh- whomever else uh, like are, are you one of those kind of learn by listening sort of managers that, that picks little bits up here and there I probably hadn't been um, this might be one of the big things I've learned in all this is that I need to be more like that um, probably spent too much time talking and not enough time listening um, and it's it's something that I've just definitely picked up from being in the presence of someone like John is that sometimes you need to just shut your mouth and open your ears like and and it's 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 something that that has hasn't done me any harm in the last couple of weeks and months um but like look like you're you're talking about the likes of Cody's like you know these guys that are legendary figures like I had the pleasure of meeting Brian once before and he had a, a very different kind of aura but it was similarly kind of almost like you can't stay like kind of you know like in the Lord of the Rings like I know that's that's back in vogue like where you're just staring into the ring like you know you're just drawn to this presence um, and like there's just certain people that draw you to their presence like and maybe maybe John Allen is more of a Gandalf figure I don't know who you actually characterise Cody as but um, but uh, it's, it's that kind of you know people that just draw you in like and I think just trying to be trying to be cognizant of that and and maybe trying to kind of be a quiet listener at this stage is something that that's been pretty good to try and um, and just develop that side of things um but like he like I said he's just so good at talking at the right time and then listening as well like like he's so like I think that I've learned so much straight away there like in terms of even to be honest with you like not as a hurling manager like even you know if you're just trying to be a person to be quite honest with you uh, if you're not from Kilkenny Brian Cody's clearly Saron that was like that's where that, that was that was it that was that was implied I just didn't yeah, want to there say. you go it's okay it's okay we, that's, we're the, you know we feel comfortable saying these types yeah. of things uh, okay. but if you're from Kilkenny obviously he's everything he's all the rest of these. Yeah. he's the good one he's the the one ring he's the eagles coming to save you um it's really interesting listening to you just talk I, I'm on the managerial route and I'm trying to soak up as much information as I can do you do you have a, a time frame in your head for where that goes or is that the type of thing that actually is just a bad idea from the get go because then you put yourself up you put yourself on a clock and the wrong opportunity at the wrong time might be something that you feel, feel like you have to force yourself into I, I feel like you've kind of answered you've answered the question better than like exactly almost as I'd like to answer it myself to really there like I think 
for a while I would have for a while actually at the start of it I would have thought yeah you're on the clock now you have to do this by 30 you have to do this by 35 and this by 40 and like I turned 30 there last month and you realise very quickly that Jesus no actually this this is more of a more of a, a kind of a, a journey and you don't really get to choose at what point you get to take certain exits and say you just have to they, they'll appear for you and like you can have to be smart and patient with it like and so I think like you said like if you if you put yourself on that clock you know you rush headlong into something because you think oh, I have to do this and I have to do that instead of you know just like when you get an opportunity to maybe do something a little bit less we'll say a little bit less uh, kind of high pressure but more you know, learning based will say, which is what this has definitely been for me. Like it's just been a totally different experience and, and a different, like totally different experience of learning in that. Like um, you learn different things about yourself and, and some, not all of them might be perfectly relevant to management. But like there's no such thing as something that you've learned. That's not going to be relevant for you going forward because you learn skills with all of that. So like, I think, like you said, like putting a clock on it would be foolish. Like I'm, like uh, I've, I've actually going into my seventh, seventh year would have been my eighth year, like involved in colleges hurling at the moment, um, um, this year, which is amazing to me that it's actually so long. Um, you know, going into my fifth year involved with club stuff, like which, which to me at my age seems like loads. Um, like I'm kind of like Jesus, that's nearly a third of my life, or it's nearly a sixth of my life. Um. But, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's absolutely no time at all. Like, and there's still loads that you have to, like, there's loads more John Allen's that you have to try and meet and, and soak things up from. Like, so um, I think putting a clock on it would be would be silly. Like, to be honest, I think, like you said, it's it's a case of just take it kind of experience by experience and learn as much as you can. The other thing uh, about coaching and management is that obviously the game evolves really quickly and... I'm very interested in, in like what your desire as a manager is. Do you want to be somebody who has a definitive style of play that actually you think is going to be successful in almost every scenario? Or are you pretty desperate to like be able to have five or six different things that you can ask your team to do? Like It, it doesn't feel like Pep Guardiola has multiple ways to play because it feels like he believes that there is uh, the best way to win. And... I don't know if Paul Knurk feels something similar or if Paul Knurk would actually just skin you in any game in a different way if he thought that, that was the way to win it. Like, how do you approach the tactical side and the acquisition of the skills as a manager to implement those tactics? What's what's your idea behind that? I think, like, to be honest, like, you cut your cloth to fit your measure. Like, I think, like, you... You, the reason Kilkenny worked for so long with what seemed like a rudimentary game plan was that they actually had the bodies that were best suited to winning that kind of game. And like, I think if Paul Kinnark and if Limerick didn't have, you know, the kind of players they did, they might say, okay, we want to play this way, but we have to tweak it a certain bit. Like, I think even look, I spoke to Paul years ago, like, and, and we spoke about stuff like this, and like, he used the term kind of principles of play which I thought was good because it kind of allowed you like a framework but that you had flexibility within it and I think for me personally that's that's probably the way I would think about the game as well like I would think there's certainly right there is certainly a right way and a wrong way in general but equally you know like it's nearly like it's it's, it's difficult it's, it's really it's a it's kind of a language debate really like you can talk about systems or tactics like and like 
one is one is for a specific game where you might tweak something but that you still generally have an actual method to your play like and that there are still kind of general things that you do even if you change one or two slight things for a game and I think even look like Guardiola can say that he has this and he's that and all he wants is small tricky wingers and that but like he's happy enough when Erling Haaland is scoring 700 goals in a season for him and he's not exactly your typical Pep kind of player like he runs in behind he's a brute around the box so like I think everyone no matter how dogmatic they might be if they're going to have any success has to be some bit flexible to certain ways like um, for me like in hurling like in the last couple of years in the last seven years like I've played like uh, not I like the teams that I've been involved with but like we've played loads of different ways we've played with sweepers we've played with three in midfield we've played with four in the half forward line we tried playing four in the full forward line once just to try and you know, open up a half forward line like like there's like there's so many different things that you can try and do like and like some of them work really well and some of them are complete disasters and you look like an idiot like but I think it's just a case of kind of learning learning how each of them kind of works best and then kind of learning how to apply them to certain situations because like even within games sometimes the right thing to do is to sit someone back in front of your full back line for five minutes just to settle things down and then sometimes the right thing to do is actually to squeeze up and like you even see that like football football is nearly always with the exception of Limerick football Gaelic football is always five or ten years ahead of hurling tactically and like you even see now like in football teams push up and then they drop off and then they push up and then they drop off because they don't actually want you to figure them out you know they have within a game they have even different kind of plans for different phases of games and different game states so I, I think like to be honest like having having one set kind of pattern it doesn't work it, whatever about soccer it's a bit more controlled in Gaelic games like there is an element there's still always going to be an element of chaos to it especially in hurling when the ball can go 90 yards like there's there's just always going to be like coaches are always going to try and control things but there's always going to be an element of chaos like that's why you get probably contests that we get which are which are so memorable I think Jimmy most people will be familiar with, with the underdogs concept and this idea that only 30 players can obviously reach the, the ultimate challenge match at the end um, that of course means that you have to make as management the tough decision you know each week to, to drop one or one or more players like having spoken to, to different managers in different sports over the last number of years they often say that can be the most difficult aspect of the job, letting people down who feel like they maybe should be involved. Like, is that something and that you'll be well used to with, with Fitzgibbon Cup teams yourself? But mm. do you find that the most difficult part of the job? Or, or, or it's not easy, especially when it's on the the TV as well. It doesn't make it easy for those players getting dropped. Yeah, it's it's. You know what? That that's definitely the worst part of the whole thing. It's the the eliminations. Um, and I suppose, like you said there, Shane, like the the fact that it's on TV as well. So you're kind of, there's a human aspect to it and that like, you know, you're, you're kind of like, uh, you, you just, you feel for the person because they've put in, like they've been brave to come. They've been brave to stay involved for a start because, you know, there's plenty of lads signed up and, and then kind of might've come to the first trial and, and then dropped out. And, you know, for various reasons, and some people dropped out before the first trial, even, you know, thought they were, said they'd do it and then decided not to like, so it's, it's it's like you would have fierce respect for anyone that puts themselves forward in any in anything in life like and this is just another one of those things like and so you'd have huge respect for someone to do that and then to have to tell someone that what really wants to be somewhere that their journey is over like I think there's a huge difference like if you were dropping someone from a squad because of commitment issues you wouldn't lose I would well I personally like you wouldn't lose a night's peace over it like but 
when it's when you're dropping someone from a squad who really wants to be there and who's working really hard to be there like that's that isn't nice like and, and I suppose that is the thing you sign up to that if you want to go down the line so you can't be squeamish about it but you know equally like I don't think you'd be well suited to management if you couldn't see the human side of that either like and and that is tough and and even you know the eliminations um I found like we we wrapped up our last camp there um 2 weeks ago um so that was the last of it like and you found that each with each camp the eliminations got harder because you were getting cuz like we only met these guys 5 6 months ago like like you're getting to know them better as people as well. And it's just harder to, you know, to tell someone that you've grown to know and like that the journey's over than we say someone you might only know a wet week. When is the match? The match is not, I'm not certain, but I think it's the end of October. I think we're waiting for absolute confirmation. Right. I think it's the last weekend of October. Okay. And so will you be training in between, obviously, to try and... Yeah, yeah. So also, like we wrapped up our last camp last week, but we still have um, we still have a couple more training sessions um, over the next two months. We'll say there's a couple of them um, scheduled in for the next uh, couple of Saturdays and, and throughout October as well. I think it's becoming an increasingly interesting concept uh, as time goes on because we understand just how difficult it is to commit to intercounty and the level of training that has to go on and. The, wasn't it um, Brody used the phrase indentured servants slaves did he, yeah. say, did he call them slaves indentured yeah. slaves I think didn't he say that yeah, yeah like yeah. Uh, so I'd say there's lots of people who are intercounty standard who in their early 20s decided that they probably didn't have the level of commitment to give to it but who in their late 20s are like jeez mm. I really wish I had maybe tried it Could before yeah yeah like but to be honest sure like I mean one another thing we found here, and it's, it was no massive surprise to me. Um, just given, like you know, like I'm involved with my own club at home, and we're we're only in in the kind of the fifth grade in Cork, like, but the level of commitment that we ask of the lads is pretty is pretty high, and and they give it like, like a lot of guys. The club commitments, you know, has has certainly, um, you know, it, it has made for we'll say over the last couple of camps where like, you know, numbers numbers are up and they're down and they're up and they're down because like lads club commitments are so heavy as well. And we from the very start we were very much of the opinion that like we were trying to help lads get better with their clubs, not impact on the clubs in a negative way. Um so like that this isn't a, a complaint as such, but just the reality is that at club level now the commitment of your top players is absolutely huge. Like I like I don't know, do people realise um the club commitment of will say you know like I think people I think people are starting to realise the club commitment of we'll say the guys in the very top clubs will say like you know your Kilmacuds and um, you know Ballygunners and them like that they are operating at a, a very very high level um, but to be honest with you like if you go to any half serious intermediate or junior club in most counties there is actually quite a serious level of commitment asked of players and that like and uh, you know that's why the standards but so that's why the overall standard has gone up at intercounty but also at club level like so um, like it's not an amazement to me to see that and like, that's why I suppose it will be interesting to see in in a month it was Jesus a month and a bit's time now yeah like how when you get a collection of guys who are training at that level already with their clubs and get them together how they can compete against guys at would say at the next rung up the ladder and like like we're under no illusions like um unlike maybe some in in club GA uh, who will go who will remain nameless um that there is a, still a huge jump from club to county GA 
um, like there's there's a massive massive jump um, and it'll be a huge challenge for the lads like and but like that's what they've signed up for is that challenge of saying you know can I compete like whether they can or they can't that's that's something that we'll find out on this pitch and that's the thing I love about sport is that it's a meritocracy um, like you get what you deserve but like they want to see if I put in a bit of work with guys of a similar level, similar level, can I compete with the guys at the next level up? Yeah. Do you know? Well, the new season starts on September 15th at half past nine on TG Carr. Gormagut, August. Best of luck with everything. I, I think your coaching Ball journey over the next while is going to be really interesting, Jamie. Thanks a million for joining us. Cheers. Gormagut, Slán. Slán. Jamie Wall there, who is um, part of the Underdogs management team. Uh, I'm off. I've been in on the Underdogs since... Donny, like ah, well, that was when when someone got so big from it, everyone was like, right, this there's something in this. Yeah, um, so and it went yeah. away for about a decade, and they brought it back, and like it's um, quality. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, OTB Sports Radio today, one o'clock. OTB Gold is uh, Barry Ryan, his uh, cycling book called The Ascent. Three o'clock is Leaders Questions with Stuart Lancaster. Our retro panel is Sport and Irish Identity at four. And OTB Gold is Keith Andrews meeting Philly McMahon uh, tomorrow. It is Adrian Barry and Ashley O'Reilly. Uh, Daniel Harris is going to preview the weekend's football. Alan Quinlan will pick the best 15 he's ever played against. Dominic Fifield will be along to talk Chelsea and Spurs. And there's loads more as well. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor. With exfoliating bar.